Hey, my freaky darlings, this is Crazy Train. Just want to let you know this before you start listening to this month's Examining the Dead. We fully intended to get this out before Christmas, but this is the year 2020, and things got nuts. And a little look behind the curtain, we actually Frankenstein these together sometimes, or Seth does when he edits. We actually recorded our interview later in the show with the Reverend Dan Wilson several weeks before Christmas with the intent of recording the other two sections and then kind of having Seth edit them all together. Well, things got behind and recording schedules got messed up. So we apologize for not getting getting this out before Christmas because, as you'll see when you get to the section with Dan, it is about uh, horror, <coughs> horror movies around the holidays. We apologize, but it is even though it's past Christmas, it's still the holiday season. So with that out of the way, we apologize and we'll we'll get on to the to the regularly recorded show once again. That's our mistake, but we're only human. Geekville Radio. Broadcasting to you out of an old wooden shack in the heart of a deep forest, Geekville presents Examining the Dead, your monthly excursion into the world of classic horror and mysticism. Hello, my freaky darlings. It's crazy. Once again, coming to you from my nice soft padded cell in the asylum somewhere in South Kakalaki. We are going to wrap up this crazy year 2020 with an examining the dead for you. We're going to take a look at all the horror movies and how they've done in the year, this crazy year 2020. We're going to have a review of Backwoods Horror, where Seth's going to be involved. We'll review the classic Deliverance starring Burt Reynolds and a more recent Backwoods Horror, Wrong Turn, starting, starring Elijah Dushku. And in the final segment, we're going to have a returning guest we've had on before, the Reverend Dan Wilson, the owner and operator of One Good Scare Productions, which, of course, is a wonderful independent horror film and media production company. And we're going to talk about themed horror that is themed around the holidays. So when we get to that, you'll get to hear Dan Dan and me discuss that. And even Seth might have something to say in that, too. We hope everybody's having a, a good holiday season. We're only a few days out from Christmas, and it, it, it's one of those times of year where you can mix some of the scary with some of the merry. So, Seth, I haven't introduced you yet. How are you doing today? I'm not going to lie. It's one of, if not the worst years of my life, probably in both a personal <laughs> and professional stand, uh, mean. But, like I said, I don't want to get into detail about that. And I always look forward to a new year. I'm not really a, a New Year's resolution type people, but Christmas is my favorite holiday. It's nice to see some people you don't get to see the rest of the year. And there's always the joy of giving presents, which is to me is many times more joyful than presents I receive. So it's a happy time of the year. And as uh, we'll probably talk about when Dan Wilson joins us, it's actually not an uncommon time of the year for there to be horror movies and horror stories uh, around right. Christmas time. So, but we'll we'll save that for later. All right. Well, if that's if that's the case, if you'll do the magic you do, we'll start off like we always do with the coroner's report. The coroner's report. Well, before we start talking on the on this this month's coroner's report about the year that was 2020 in horror movies, there was a piece of media that dropped a couple weeks ago at the Video Game Awards show. It was something that had been rumored for a while, and I believe you had a chance to watch this trailer as well. But we got a reveal trailer. For Evil Dead, the game. Did you get a chance to watch that? I know I sent you a link, Seth. Yes, yes, and I liked what I saw. I even played the first Evil Dead game for a while. I think I was on the the first generation Xbox, and Bruce Campbell did voice work for that. Mm-hmm. This looked like it's kind of 
a mashup of the first two games because right. it looks like it's still got Scotty and the, and the characters from the first game. And, of course, it's got that 73 Olds uh, Delta 88 that's in mm-hmm. all the all the Raimi movies. But it looks like Ash still has the fake hand and uh, chainsaw, which, of course, didn't happen until the, the I think it wasn't until uh, Army Darkness Middle, that he did that. Yeah. Not middle of part two. Yeah, Army Darkness is when he, make, when he makes kind of the bionic hand. You know, that's the, correct. That is uh, correct. Not bad for a non-horror fan there. Impressed. Right. <laughs> I, I have seen all three of them, and I've seen Army of Darkness several times. I, I was one of those that had the bootleg VHS that had the alternate ending where he sleeps too long. Which, quite frankly, I like that ending better for mm-hmm. what it's worth. I think most fans do because it's right. more more in line with what Ash really would do. But <laughs> Right, right. And so, but, so that was one of the few times I was able to one-up my friends who actually were more bigger horror buffs than I was because I was able to pull that out and say, hey, you ever seen this? Yeah, well, just just to get people caught up that don't know, back in October, right around the time of our last episode, Gun Media, who, of course, were the creative geniuses behind Friday the 13th, the game, shut down their dedicated servers and switched over to peer-to-peer servers. And there was a lot of rumors going on what was going on at Gun Media. The general consensus was, by most of us in the horror community, was that in light of the lawsuit and where they were with the game, not going to be able to release some of the content they were working on, which we now know through leaked, not leaked, but it, but but footage and things that Jamie Kellner, the, the, the creative head of Gun Media, has shown us, there was going to be a Grindle map and an Uber Jason skin. There was going to be, I believe, the Lazarus boat was one they also announced from Part 8. So these were things that just were never going to be able to happen. And I think we all kind of collectively agreed that once they shut down the dedicated servers, that was kind of their way of saying we're moving on to the to the next project. Because yeah, uh, a big appeal to games like that is the multiplayer. And if you don't have servers, then right. you're not going to have multi- online multiplayer. Right. And, of course, that wasn't until a year into the game we even got the solo missions with the challenges for Jason. It was mostly the whole game was the, the bulk of it was the, the Jason versus the other players counselors, the multiplayer online stuff. So you couple that with around the same time, Kane Hodder posting on his Twitter and his Instagram that he was working on a video a video game doing mocap. So people were really getting intrigued. Where's this going? Could this be a Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Could this be a Nightmare on Elm Street? Could this be whatever? We didn't know. Yeah, because and just and, in case there, we have any listeners that may not know, Kane Hodder's done more than just Jason. He's done a lot right. of stunt work, so it actually makes sense that he'd be doing mocap work for non-Jason-oriented stuff. Sure, exactly. And we all knew, going back a year, Bruce Campbell's been very open about he's working on a video game. So when you take all these breadcrumbs, there was a lot of furor, that's where they're going, that that gun media is going to be making an Evil Dead game. Then we come to find out when this trailer is dropped, which surprised everyone, by the way, it's not gun media. It's another developer, which their name is slipping me right now. But it has very much of the look of the Friday the 13th games that Gun Media and Ilphonic did, which, quite frankly, I think was, was, was a plus and a positive for those fans of that 80s era horror. So we still don't know what Kane's doing. I guess we do know now what Bruce has been doing because it's obvious this is, this is Bruce's voice work. This is a mocap because it looks like they mocap Bruce to get the facial expressions from what we saw in the trailer. We still don't know what Gun Media is doing. There's a lot of speculation on where they're going, and there's a lot of speculation on what Kane's doing. Who knows? There's a lot of money to be made in horror games in general. 
I think even before the success of Friday the 13th, the game, you need to look no further than the, the success of things like Silent Hill, uh, Resident Evil, Dead Space, some of these other horror-related titles to know that there's definitely a market. But the trailer came out. We've seen it now. Looks to me, based on what I've seen, to be something of a mix between the old Left 4 Dead series, zombie game series, and Friday the 13th. We are we have been told by the developers there will be a multiplayer online and there will be a co-op. What we did see from the trailer was Ash, like you said, Scott, which is cool because that's a that's a callback to one of the characters from the first movie. Mm-hmm. He was actually kind of more of the badass than Ash was in that movie. Yes, he was. Uh, King Arthur from Army of Darkness in his full chainmail armor and sword wielding, which I thought was kind of hilarious because it's obviously in a modern t- setting. But he is a part of the franchise, and I think a, a character who is a fan favorite. And then what I found uh, exciting was the fourth character was Kelly from the from the TV series, Ash vs. Evil Dead. So this nice blend, it looks to me, of, of all the characters or characters from every incarnation aspect of the franchise. I know you probably haven't played Left 4 Dead. I'm sure some of our listeners have. It is definitely a co-op game where there's four characters that are trying to survive in a zombie apocalypse. It seems to me like they're kind of going to do that, but they're replacing the zombies with deadites. Is this a game that, that, that piqued your interest at all when you saw the, the trailer? I know you are an Evil Dead fan. Yeah, I'll, I'll at least check it out. And I remember having a measure of interest in the Friday the 13th game, but I don't have any current-gen or next-gen systems handy, so I was right. never able to play the game. Because when I hear about a game system, I'm like, hey, can I play Galaga on it? So <laughs> You're that, that's kind of how uh, up-to-date in gaming I am. That's how old school you are. So right. anyways, I, we'll, we'll keep you abreast of any new news coming out about that game. I'm looking forward to it. It's supposed to be released sometime in, I believe, 2022, I believe is what they told us. So we've got a whole year of anticipation. If they're like most games nowadays, like they did with Friday the 13th, we will be getting small bits and pieces, gameplay and development and concept art and things of that nature as time goes on. That's kind of how the, the, the video game developers do that nowadays. And I, I did hit the wiki uh, in the past couple minutes there. It looks like the companies involved in the Evil Dead game are Boss Team and Saber Interactive. Saber Interactive, that's it. And Sp- Saber spelled the British way, R-E, not E-R, correct? Right. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. And then, of course, when and if we find out what exactly Kane Hodder's working on and what they have said it's going to be a horror title. If we hear any news about that, we'll we'll, we'll talk about it on, on an episode of Evil, of Examine the Dead, and we'll... Put it, of course, on on the the Facebook page and the the website. But just thought that that we should mention that before we move on to where we were for horror movies for 2020. So as I don't have to tell anybody because, well, you're alive and it's December of 2020. This has been an absolute insane year. I think one of the industries that's got hit the absolute most by the insanity of 2020 has been the film industry. I guess it was probably what? mid-March is when all the lockdowns started. Right, right. And I think that happened after all the major sports conglomerates of the NBA and all that, they all announced that they were suspending their seasons. I think that's really mm-hmm. when it started sinking in. The, re- that this, this the is something reality really of serious. it all. Yeah. And so uh, as, I, as I pulled up some websites to look at where we stood on box office numbers, I want everybody to understand as we discuss these, this is – not like any other year, because you essentially had two and a half months of films being released before 
the lockdowns and the ability to go to movie theaters ended. And depending on where you live, that might still be true. There has been some loosening of, 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 of the restrictions in certain areas. I know where I am in South Carolina, there's a little bit of loosening, less so than where you are in the Chicagoland area. But it just varies from where you are uh, in, in the United States or uh, in the world, for that matter, as to where you stand on lockdowns. So I, I do think that as I looked at this list, the bulk of the top, with the exception of one movie, the top four or five were all movies that were released in those first few months of the year, which horror movies get released throughout the year. But we both have said that's not a time you see a lot of horror movies is the early part of the year. Most of your horror movie releases summertime. There's another little, 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 little surge around Halloween in October. And as we'll discuss with Dan later in the episode, there's a surge again around December and the holidays. But historically speaking, the beginning of the year is not a time to see a lot of horror movies. I'm sure you could concur with that. Seth. Right. Right. I, I worked in a movie theater for a number of years, so you, you kind of notice patterns like that. Right. So this is so as we look at these numbers, and I, I'll, I'll point out release dates. And like I said, one movie in particular was not released in, in the early part of the year, which is unusual. And I'll explain what that movie was and why I think it did that. But number one through number nine of top box office earners and horror movies for the year 2020, all but number two, were released in January or February. So what does that tell you? It was all was pre-COVID lockdown. Sorry, there was there was two. There was another one that was released in August, and then another that I'll get to, and I think it's a special case. But the number one movie was released at the end of February, February 28, 2020, and that was The Invisible Man. Of course, that was the remake of the 50s classic, The Invisible Man, and it was meant to be part of that universal dark shared universe that didn't really work out, but they went ahead and released it anyways. And and I have seen it. It's it's very well done. I did not see it in the theater, though. I think it was one of the first movies that they went ahead and released it, and it was doing well, but then the lockdown came, and I think it was, what, midsummer when they finally decided to release it on demand and, and, and be able to stream, I think, on, on the Peacock app, if I remember right, which is, of course, NBC's and owned by Universal. But that, of course, will does not get added into the box office but the box office was not not bad for a movie that really only ran for two weeks before the lockdown it earned just shy of 65 million dollars so not only that's bad for a horror movie do you and it, it was on a budget of about seven million i think so it definitely made money no, right, no two yeah. ways about it and like i said it was released on february 28th and the lockdowns came mid-march it was really only out in the theater for a couple of weeks, so not bad. Just some others. Number two is the special case I'll get to. Number three was Fantasy Island. It was also it was released February 14th. It made $26.4 million. Number, number four was the one that was released in August, and that was The New Mutants. We've discussed on our regular Geekville that movie. It had – how many times was the release of that movie delayed? Three, right. four times? Right, and, and and especially when you look at some of the cast in there, because you had uh, people that were in Stranger Things, you had Macy Williams who was in Game of Thrones, so mm-hmm. you had a cast there that developed some geek cred while the movie was being delayed. Right, it earned uh, twenty three point eight million. I think that it probably didn't do as well because the, on top of COVID, we all know this is the end of of the the twentieth century Fox X Men stuff. It seems to me that even before that went through, they had already decided to kind of go a horror bent with this one because obviously the script and the pre-production and the shooting 
would have all happened before the Disney buyout of Fox. Mm-hmm. So I think they were planning to go that way anyways, don't you? Yeah, yeah. And, and I think there were a, a, a lot of people certainly who are familiar with the goings-on and the, how we're, we're following the Disney buyout. We're like, okay, well, this is effectively a lame duck movie. Right. It's not going to matter right. on anything because Disney's just going to hit the reset button on everything. Right, right. So then the other others that are that that fall into that category of the beginning of the year, uh, number five, The Turning, January twenty fourth. Number six, Gretel and Hansel, January thirty first. Number seven, Brahms, The Boy Two, February twenty first. Uh, number eight, the remake of The Grudge, January third. And then nine, Come Play, which was when you finally start getting back into the later year, which was released the day before Halloween. October 30th. But the unusual one in all those, as you can see, you had the the group there that just were able to actually be in the theaters for a few weeks or a month. No shocker, the matter of the quality, they're going to top because of just a crazy year it is. But the strange one is number two. Would you like to guess what the number two box office earner was of horror movies in 2020? How about if I give you a release date? And this will really make you go, huh? It was released in 1978. But it was but it was number two for horror in twenty twenty with forty seven point two million at the box office. Have I stumped you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm I'm at a loss. It was the original John Carpenter's Halloween. Oh, okay. I guess I can see that now. And I I I just could not figure out how when I looked at these lists, and then it made sense to me because of the lockdown at theaters and the social distancing. We saw a resurgence in the summer of the old drive-in movies. The places still had operational drive-ins. I know we had them around here. I think you said you had some up there, too. Yeah, that- yeah they're, they're, they're a bit of a distance because I also remember I was going to bring it up, but Halloween's actually a better subject because it's horror appropriate. But I remember The Empire Strikes Back for a while was actually the number one movie for a couple of weeks because of right. drive-ins and it being the 40th anniversary. And with, and with drive-ins, for those that don't know, who actually live in an area where they wouldn't have access to them, they weren't running first-run movies at these drive throughs They were turning them to kind of these nostalgia trips, a cheap plug there, <clears throat> for, for another one of our podcasts. But they were showing older movies, movies that, that would be more in line with what you would have seen in a, in a drive-in theater back in the day. Well, Halloween is a classic. I understand why it was re-released, and I'm not shocked at all. It made almost $50 million in a, essentially a third run now. You got any thoughts on that, or can you see can you see why I'm feeling that way? Oh yeah, I, I absolutely can see because I remember seeing some of the lineups in the drive-in theaters. Now I never actually went to one this year, mm-hmm. uh, but I, I would see some. There were some that would do Star Wars marathons. They'd show like three mm-hmm. of the movies in one night because obviously drive-in theaters you can't go in the day unless right. maybe there's some indoor ones, but you have to wait till the night. So they can't really show movies. They can't really show. 12 different movies throughout the day. So usually it would be some sort of themed or some sort of double feature. You pay once and you get to see both movies if you arrive early enough, stuff like that. So it, it makes sense that through the safety of their own car or van or whatever they're driving, we can still enjoy a movie and depending on your sound system, get, get uh, great theater quality sound as well. Yeah, that's the thing I think is really big. And I think part of the resurgence, so to speak, besides the COVID is for those that don't know, me and Seth remember because we're old enough, your sound back in the day from a drive-through was a little speaker box. And when you pulled into your into your parking space, you rolled your window down, took the speaker box that, off of this pole they had there, and thing was heavy too, by the way, and basically hung it on your window or your door frame. 
So the sound was inside your car. It was okay sound, but it wasn't the same as like this Dolby surround sound THX we're used to now. Right. Um, it was to give, make another dated reference. It'd be like a transistor radio, the, exactly you know, the portable radio from like the seventies. But with everything being digital now, including these drive-in theaters that have retrofitted their systems into digital systems, now when you go to a drive-in theater, they will tell you to tune to a low-band radio frequency, and the soundtrack for the movie will be on that frequency. So you're hearing it on, like you said, your high-end car stereos now through your radio. And for those of you that don't know, you could turn your car off, and your car, 12-volt car battery, can run a radio for days before it drains the battery. Days. Um, Don't leave the ignition on. Right. Just turn it off. Turn the accessory part on. Exactly. And you can – you'd be amazed how much juice you can get out of a fully charged 12-volt battery before it'll die. But I – I. well, like I said, when I saw that, I was like, how can that be? And then I was like, well, duh. And, and I think you're right. A lot of the movies I saw around here, they were doing themed nights. I think they they did one around here where they did, like, action movies one night. They did, like, Die Hard, the first one. I want to say the first Lethal Weapon and another one was, like, a triple bill. And it's been a boon to them. I wonder, do you think that this is there's going to be a resurgence now in drive-in theaters overall because of this? I think it's possible. I, I really think the the bigger thing long term that's going to benefit from this is the streaming services because Warner Brothers has announced that their 2021 lineup is yes. also going to be released on HBO Max. So if yep. you're an Day HBO up. Max subscriber, I know, I know it's a little bit more than Netflix and about double what Disney is. When you factor in that you're getting a lot of their first run movies at the same time they're coming out in the theaters, well, if you see a movie every month kind of pays for itself then right well if you if you go to the list there after you get past number number eight number nine on the list of horror movie box office receipts for 2020 the drop off is significant you drop off from from your your eight figures to just around a million and then once you get down to around number 20 you're dropping down to half a million two hundred thousand dollars that's because a lot of these were small independent films they were not released until October, November, or, or November. So there's just not. They haven't been out in theaters. We spoke earlier about there's not as many theaters open now as there were when some of these earlier movies, like Invisible Man, was out with all the theaters were open. So I don't know how this is going to affect the horror movie genre as much as it will the film industry overall. Because I feel the horror movie genre, though, is one of those genres that's always kind of lended itself to independent films and smaller releases anyways, don't you, Seth? Yeah, and I've said before that horror is one of those more viable genres because you can do a lot on a lower budget because a lot of times you don't need big-budget special effects if somebody who's good at makeup. Right, right. Even some middle-of-the-road CGI nowadays is not that as expensive because the technology has... But most most true horror hounds like me will tell you we prefer the practical. And I think the horror genre is one of those genres that still will take the time to do practical effects if they feel it's, they it's going to work better. Much more so than your sci-fi, your fantasy, your action. Don't you agree? Absolutely, yeah. So I do think, though, that the, the drive-in experience is just an experience that lends itself to horror movies. Like you said, it's always at night. You're outside. It has to be dark. The, the heyday of the, of the drive-ins from the 50s through the 70s 
were your B-horror sci-fi movies of the 50s and then your exploitation of the 70s. So I think there's just a natural history there. You, you have any thoughts on that, Seth? Yeah, I, I think you're right. I've, I've heard the stories that a lot of those low-budget 50s B-movies that you wind up seeing on Mr. Science Theater and such, that they were kind of made with drive-ins in mind. Right, right. I, I, so I don't know. 2021, it can't be much worse than 2020. It'll be interesting to see how the film industry as a whole handles it. I think you've already brought up one point how there you know, we do know that production has has started up again on a lot of these these movies and a company like like Warner Brothers HBO has decided, "Hey, 2021, we're going to release all of our new movies in the theaters where the theaters are open and on HBO Max the same day." I know that's coming on Christmas Day with Wonder Woman 1984 or 84, I guess it is. So, I that leads me to my next question for you. What say ye when it comes to the fact uh, that do, how does the film industry fully recover? We know Regal has already shut down all their theaters, and that affects me because the only chain of theaters that we have in my area were Regal's. AMC, my understanding, which is I think the largest theater chain in the country, they are going to be bankrupt by, by January. So in less than a month, they might have to shut down. Do you see how, how major a shift do you see in the paradigm of the movie-going experience, with all the things we're talking about, with the, the the resurgence of drive-ins, with the streaming networks, with some of these major chains shutting down, some of them close to have to shut down. What do you think the future is, not just of horror, but of movies in general from here on out and the movie theater experience? Well, like you said, if AMC truly goes bankrupt, or Chapter 11, or however they go there, they're probably going to have to at least massively downsize. Right. And they are, I think they... they gobbled up most of the other major chains anyway so you're talking the majority of theaters in the entire country if not the world i think it's down. like over 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 like 2300 theaters that's a that, that's a lot yeah. of theaters man yeah yeah do do the math on that that comes out to what like uh, it averages out to what about 40 theaters in every state i know yes. some states are bigger than others of course but i think you get my yeah, idea. That's, that's on on average right. you take a right. big state like california they might have a hundred a small state or less popular like wyoming might have 10 but right. still but but what I think this leads to is if there's not nearly as many theaters around, that, of course, makes the income go down, which means we're probably going to see a lot less $200 million blockbuster films because there's just no way they could make back that amount of money very quickly. So I think we're going to have to see a downsizing in budgets, which, like we just said, for horror probably isn't as big of a deal. But I think that also means there'll be a rise in ind- independent filmmaking and more independently owned theaters that, that's Which, that's what i think you know, certainly quite frankly from a certain point of view is what i'd like to see and, and as as the as the proponent of horror here obviously hosting this podcast i see that as actually a boon for horror movies because mm-hmm. like we've been saying it's a genre that that already lends itself to independent film it always has Halloween, which we just said is the number two box office grossing movie of this year, even though it was originally released in 1978, it wasn't independent when it came out and, and broke all those records. Compass International was it wasn't a major studio when when Carpenter made that movie. So I, I think Evil Dead was not a major. We were talking about that. That wasn't a major movie when it came out. I think horror, one of the best horror production companies going today, in my opinion, is IFC Midnight which is an independent studio tied into the IFC cable channel that mm-hmm. specializes in horror. Uh, Blumhouse, which, if, of course, is one of the other big 
uh, horror movie production companies right now. They're an independent. They're not. They're not tied to any of these major studios. I think they will actually see uh, a, a viability and survivability. Whereas, like you said, the MCU type movies of the world, they might not survive this. But we'll see. Well, like I said, I don't think 2021 can be any worse than 2020. Could be as bad. But we'll we'll see. I I don't think it's going to affect horror that much. I do think that because of this, we're definitely in for some changes. Mm-hmm. Whether those are good or bad, I don't know. I do think that it will definitely increase the viability, and it was already headed this way anyways, of streaming uh, services. And as we talk about a lot on this on this podcast, Shudder, which is completely dedicated to horror-related t- stuff as a streaming service, I think they can only benefit from this. And I, want, and I think you're probably going to see some of the other streaming services out there, the bigger ones, the, the, the Netflix and the Hulus. They might increase their horror uh, catalog simply because, like we said, I think they're just, it's just a genre that's already going to be cheaper to make to begin with. You agree? Yep. Yep. Makes sense. Yeah. Well, let's just, let's just see. We got, we got a lot of things to look forward to in 2021. We'll, of course, keep you abreast here on Examining the Dead where any new releases or any changes that happen in the movie in in the movie world especially in in horror of course hopefully horror i've always compared the friday the 13th franchise the way frank mancuso jr the executive at paramount described it which was it was a cockroach of a franchise (laughs) because just like just like a cockroach it seemed to just keep going and no matter how bad paramount tried to kill it it wouldn't die i think you can extrapolate that out to horror movies in general and so some of these other genres might die, but I think horror movies are cockroaches that are just going to survive no matter what. So we, we shall see. We're going to go pay some bills right now, and when we come back, we're going to have our gruesome twosome for this month where we review uh, a classic Deliverance and one of, my, one of my more favorite horror movies in the last 20 years or so, Wrong Turn. So let's pay the bills and, and come right on back. How does that sound to you, Seth? Sounds like a plan. Are you looking for a gaming-themed podcast? Then check out You Just Got Fried. Join host Jared Aubrey and this panel of gaming enthusiasts as they discuss news and accomplishments in the gaming world and, of course, the gripe of the week. That's all at YouJustGotFried.com, part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family. <laughs> it's time for the gruesome twosome. <laughs> Well, we're back. We hope you made it safely from uh, that first batch of ads. And it's this time once again for this month's Gruesome Twosome. The theme for this this month's Gruesome Twosome is a pretty common trope in horror movies. That is Backwoods Terror. These are two movies, by the way, that Seth has also seen. So we're going to get a little bit more from Seth than we normally do. The first one <laughs> we're going to start with is a Stone Cold classic. It is a movie that is not only not only a horror classic, but... There are many would say it isn't even horror. Many would say it's an action thriller. But either way you look at whatever genre you put it in, I think it is considered a true classic of filmmaking. So much so that in 2008, it was uh, put in the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress. So, yeah, it's a classic. And that would be the 1972 thriller slash horror movie Deliverance with its excellent cast of Burt Reynolds, Ronnie Cox, John Voight. And Ned Beatty. I know you're a big Burt Reynolds fan, Seth. So mm-hmm. this has got to be one of the movies that's at the top of your list. It's probably just favorite Burt Reynolds films and just films in general. For a Burt Reynolds film, it is very different. And I remember Burt himself said he thinks it's 
personally the best movie he ever did. And obviously people our age and a little younger probably remember Burt most for being in The Bandit and The Cannonball Run and all those action comedies with cars and such. But he really was a good dramatic actor. And of course, he went back to a lot of drama and character roles later in his career. But this is probably the most serious movie he ever did. And yeah, I can see why people would call it a thriller. But when you have people in your group that get kind of mercilessly killed and such by people who maybe they're cannibals, maybe they weren't, but they were definitely kind of the backwater hick type, no teeth, and they play the banjo type type characters. And just what they do to Ned Beatty is, you know, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are probably familiar with the squeal like a pig line. Sure. And that's scary to a lot of people. I think the horror elements are there from the from the get go. I think that John Borman, who was the director of this film, did a went to great lengths to build tension, make you a little offsetting from the get go, and the special effects, the 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 kills, the fact that they're being stalked, and that becomes very very evident from, I'd say about the scene early on in the start of the canoe trip all the way to the end that they realize they're being stalked and then all ma- all doubt is removed pretty quickly on up to like you said the the infamous rape scene i don't know in today's day and age if uh, if a, a scene like that one gets done and two if it gets made it gets filmed the way it was filmed because mm-hmm. it it looked uh, pretty convincing for those that aren't familiar with it a brief synopsis of the of the of the plot is basically it is basically Bill Burt Reynolds' character is a the leader, the alpha of a group of four males, all of whom are businessmen from the Atlanta area, who has convinced the other three characters to go on a weekend long canoe slash camping trip with him at the nearby fictional I think it's Kahalawasi or Kaholuwasi is what they call it river which is fictional it was actually based on the on the Kusala, Kusalali which is a real river and I'll get to that later that was going to be dammed soon by a power company for either a hydroelectric plant or a nuclear power plant and he kind of convinces them to go on this trip as it be a last chance to see this rugged part of the American frontier so to speak or the American wilderness and one of the characters, the John Voigt character, is a somewhat experienced outdoorsman and has been on trips in before, but the Ronnie Cox character and the Ned Beatty character have never been uh, on trips like this. They are true city slickers. They are a bit demeaning and rude, for lack of a better term, to some of the local hillbillies, as you described earlier, Seth, early on in the trip. And they start once the once they start their canoe trip, it becomes uh, very obvious that they are being stalked by these some of these locals, and through a series of events, uh, they have they are wind they wind up ha- wind up killing one of the locals that is stalking them, and reluctantly the others are convinced by Burt Reynolds to let's just dump the body and never speak of this again, which just increases the stalking and leads to a pretty ten- high high tension high drama, almost cat and mouse game, I'd say, for the last, what, 20, 30 minutes of the film? Where they're yeah, just chased, where it, it literally becomes a, a survival of the fittest type thing. And then it culminates with some of, the, some of the group dying and more hillbillies being killed and has a great ending where Burt Reynolds' character is injured during all this 
and so is John Voight's. And as they're, or sorry, John Voight's character is injured in pursuing the bad, pursuing the bad guys, so to speak, the hillbillies. He tries to shoot one of them with a bow they've brought with him, and winds up sh- stabbing himself or shooting himself in the leg by accident, and has the arrow go through it. So, on Burt Reynolds on the way to take him to the hospital is confronted by the local sheriff, who kind of intimates he knows they did something. But he can't prove it, so it would be best for them just to never come back to that part of the world. And that's kind of how it ends. Anything you want to add to the plot there? Did I, did I, did I sum that up pretty good? No, no, I think you, you summed up pretty well. It, it is definitely one of those movies that doesn't ha- have the happy ending, so to speak. The, the, the happiest no. thing about it is that they survive. Right. That's, some of them get out of alive. When I talk about horror elements in this movie, uh, Ronnie Cox's death scene is... I can't remember if it's on screen or off screen, but they find his body floating down river later on, and it's a very graphic special effect where his arm is basically behind his back, and it's quite obvious his shoulder's dislocated, and it's pretty gruesome. I'm sure you, you that the visual I'm speaking of. So. Yeah, yeah, and it's and especially for its time. This this is before right. the majority of the gory deaths and slasher films and stuff like that. That's what it's still. Yeah, this is 1972. Brutal. This is 1972. Yeah. Right. Well, this, this movie was, was based upon a pretty successful novel that had come out a year or two before the movie, written by James Dickey. And it was a bit polarizing upon its release. There were many who saw it for what they were attempting to do, which was kind of give it this, this scary terror kind of vibe to it, but at the same time kind of present this idea of survival of the fittest, Darwinism at its like ultimate level. I think there's other other themes like city rural versus urban manners versus not having manners about about judging people by their book judging a book by its cover there any of those themes that really stuck out to you in this film not really i think if you were talking about kind of movie that probably wouldn't get made today if something like this were to be made today there'd be the twist where the bad guys aren't the real bad guys whereas in this you kind of tell who the bad guys are pretty early on and and this movie there have there had been movies before this and and books where there was this the idea of, of setting it in the wilderness whether it be the Appalachian forests or whatever but you got to remember this predates this predates Texas Chainsaw Massacre it predates Friday the Thirteenth it predates uh, a lot of these movies where this idea of the backwoods or a rural setting is so fraught with terror and dangers. And I think it kind of, I think it kind of <clears throat> set the table for that for for basically backwoods terror type horror films. What say ye? Yeah, I think you're exactly right. I know Victor Miller has said in interviews, and of course Victor Miller was a screenplay writer for the original Friday the Thirteenth, which has come on to become a classic in backwoods terror, the Friday the Thirteenth franchises. That part of the part of the reasoning behind setting the the film in a summer camp setting in New Jersey was this idea that you have to put your protagonists in a position where they are cut, cut off from communication and the ability to get any kind of help. Truly worst, put them in the worst-case scenario, so to speak. And I think that's true. And I think e- even, even in the 1970s and definitely today, one of the few places you can do that in the United States is rural, whether it's the High Rockies or the Appalachian Mountains or the swamps of – you know, the Gulf Coast or maybe the the tundras of Alaska or the jungles of Hawaii. Those are kind of the only places left of the backwoods here in the United States like that. I know you live in a very, some very urban setting. You're being a Chicagoland guy. 
But still, you drive, what, an hour, hour and a half outside of south of Chicago, and you're in a fairly rural part of Illinois, and there's some backwoods there, too. Is that correct? Absolutely, yeah. I drive about 90 minutes, two hours straight south, and as I like to say, you find the type of places where you can get your fishing gear, your guns, and your alcohol all in the same building. Sure. Video rentals, groceries. (laughs) Yeah. We have a lot of those around where I'm from, but anyway, yeah, I think I think one of the things that's always drawn me to this movie, and if you ever get back down this way, Seth, I want to take you to some of this area, is this film was filmed literally an hour, hour and a half from where I live. One of the scenes, which I'll talk about in a little bit, was literally seen filmed 20 minutes from where I work. So because they did actually choose a real rural part of the United States, I think one of the standouts to the to this film is the, just the, the natural scenery and cinematography. Uh, you've said yourself that even though it's a, it's, it's a disturbing movie, the, the scenery is gorgeous. I'm sure you still feel that way. Oh yeah, yeah. I, I've I've been to the Carolinas. I've been to Georgia. Not really that much, but the, the scenery, the hills, all that are are very beautiful. Yes, and it was filmed in Rabin County, Georgia, which is right on the Georgia South Carolina state line, and. Rabin, the city of Rabin and Rabin County, after the film's success, and like I said, it was commercially and critically extremely successful from the moment it was released in 72, they wisely have kind of turned that area into a bit of a tourist trap based solely on the, hey, come see the locations that this film was was made. And even for those that probably were a little disturbed by by the content and the plot of the movie, they still respected, wow, this is gorgeous. There is one scene that was filmed here in South Carolina uh, that was filmed, the one that's close to where I, where I work. Uh, it's on the Oconee-Pickens County line, which is really near Clemson, which is Clemson University is the big national college football powerhouse right now. And that was, it was, there's a scene in a graveyard during the early part of the chase by the hillbillies of these, of these city folk that was filmed in the graveyard of the Mount Carmel Baptist Church there on the on the Oconee, Oconee and Pickens County lines. That part of, of that region of Sacana now sits under about 35, 40 feet of water. There are some scenes you will see also in the movie of a dam being built, the aforementioned dam that, that, that Burt Reynolds uses, character uses to convince the guys, hey, let's do this. We aren't going to have much longer to do it. They dammed up part of Lake Jocassee. Jocassee is an Indian princess's name from the region. Cherokee Indian that they used to create two man-made lakes called Lake Kiwi and Lake Toxaway, and all three of those lakes they're finger lakes. They're they're lakes that are very th- uh, thin across but deep that finger between the the, the mountains there because this is right on the North Carolina South Carolina line, and they're used as in the cooling process for a nuclear power plant that Duke Power runs there in that area now uh and and was being built in the late 60s early 70s but they have flooded that area and it is turned into quite the destination for scuba divers they removed the bodies but they left the above ground tombstones in and just flooded the area out so it has the dual attraction of being a mini underwater city and the fact that oh by the way this is where that scene was filmed in the deliverance movie and I've been down there. I went down there, and I was getting my certification for scuba diving. And it's it's really cool. There's a there's a school bus. There's a couple of street signs. There's a stop sign. There's probably eight to a dozen tombstones. The front facade of the church itself, and 
a couple of 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 homes that have two or three walls still standing. So it, it's quite serene and peaceful, but quite eerie at the same time. I'm sure you can imagine being underwater and seeing something like that. Catch Seth? Oh yeah, yeah. But th- that dam really does exist, the Jocassee Dam there on Lake Jocassee, and the river itself. Like I said in the in the, in the movie, the fake name of the river is the Cachulahussee, but it's actually the Chuasa, or is the name of the real river. And the the scenes that were filmed on the river were actually filmed on the Chattooga River, which runs between runs through Georgia, South Carolina, and North Carolina. I have actually kayaked, canoed, and rafted that that river, different sections of that river multiple times myself. It has become quite the hotbed. The two stunt coordinators for the film, who I'm losing their names here. Let me look them up again real quick. They, they, oh, I cannot find their names. They, but both of them have gone on to great success because of the film. One, he and his wife opened the Nantahala, the Nantahala Outdoor Center, which is in North Carolina, near where scenes from The Fugitive were filmed. And it is the national training center for our national Olympic kayaking and canoeing team. And the other stunt coordinator who did the whitewater canoe scenes, he has coached. And the section, some of the sections that they filmed the movie in on the Chattooga were actually used in the 96 Atlanta Summer Games for the Olympic competition events. So that, that I think, is part of the reason that this, this film – has always drawn me. These are areas that I grew up being an outdoorsman, spending a lot of time in, spending being a, being around, and, and it's just it's not that far. And I'm sure you, being the Burt Reynolds fan, you are as much as you want me to take you to that part of the world to see where they filmed Dukes of Hazard. Seeing some of the places where Deliverance is filmed is kind of an attraction to you too, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, I believe so. Yeah, yeah, I figured it would be. <laughs> you talk about how different a movie this could be. the The film went through many casting decisions and and and, and things like like that or, and 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 behind the crew behind the scene the, the originally dicky the, the the screenplay writer and the writer of the novel it's based on he wanted sam peckinpah to direct the film sam peckinpah is a legendary western director probably most well known for the wild bunch i think peckinpah probably because he's known for his graphic violence he he would have hit that well don't you think seth oh yeah definitely uh, but some of the other names that were bandied about before they came up with the final cast were Gene Hackman in the John Voight role. Gene Hackman, for for transparency, he's my favorite actor of all time. I think that the four roles that the, 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 the four main characters play have become such a part of who they are in their filmography. We have a hard time imagining anybody else playing the characters except for John Voight, Burt Reynolds, Ned Beatty, and Ronnie Cox. But Gene Hackman... That's an interesting – he's a great actor. Don't you agree? Well, yeah, absolutely. And I remember hearing that the director hired Burt based on an appearance on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Right, right. He did. Like I said, Peck and Paul was who the writer wanted, uh, and he wanted Gene Hackman to play the, play the John Voight character. Borman, John Borman, the director, he wanted Lee Marvin to play that role. But I think Lee's a little too harsh to play the John Voight character. <clears throat> I, I John Voight brings the – Every man, common sense, level-headedness. Lee Marvin's more just a, a, a fucking badass. Let's be honest. You know that's what he was known for. But other actors that were bandied about and thrown about in the casting process were actors like Marlon Brando, Jack Nicholson, Donald Sutherland, Charlton Heston, 
Robert Redford, Henry Fonda, Warren Beatty, George C. Scott. That's 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 They're all A-list of A-list, isn't it? Yeah, definitely A-listers, every one of them. Yeah, but like I said, I think for me at least, it's such a a, a piece of American pop culture that we kind of have a hard time separating how well uh, all four character main characters were portrayed by the. I believe this was Ronnie Cox and Ned Beatty's film debut, was it not? If it wasn't, it was pretty close. Right. Right. It's it's it. it, it I, I know the squeal like the pig, which is like you said, it's probably the most infamous role. Interesting thing that you don't see nowadays because of the demise of broadcast television and the turnover of, of a theatrical release to streaming and, and DVD and digital release. When that scene came down, there was a discussion amongst the producers and Borman, the director, about we need this to be a scene where what is actually happening for the theatrical release, which will show some of it, and they do. The adults will very much understand what's going on. But knowing that it was going to be edited for television and released a few years after the theatrical run on broadcast television, like most big movies were back then, they needed a they needed some kind of language that could be used that would they could cut away and edit in a picture not showing the actual rape, just show this. But hear Ned Beatty saying, you hear Ned Beatty squealing like a pig and the, the hillbilly saying squeal like a pig and a small child would see it would not really understand what's going on, but the adults would. Right. And, and there was a lot of argument. And I think it was Ned Beatty himself that came up with that line, squeal like a pig. And there was, you know, there was a lot of back and forth. And they didn't know. And, and I think it was Hurt who said, go with Ned's line. That's, that's, that really works. Can you think of deliverance and not think of that line in your in your mind? It automatically pops in there when you hear the word deliverance and think about the movie, doesn't it? Pretty much that, or the very famous dueling banjo guitar scene. Right, which is where I was getting ready to go to next. Nice segue, Seth. <laughs> I think the other most iconic piece to come out of this, like Seth said, is the soundtrack by Eric Weisberg, who took a earlier piece of, of bluegrass music called Feuding Banjos that was written by a bluegrass uh, player and it's a one it was originally written for one five string uh, banjo player versus one four string banjo player to show you the difference between what they call claw hammer and finger picking styles of finger picking. They're two different styles of picking a banjo. Well Weisberg actually kind of made his own arrangement and made it a guitar versus banjo duet. And there's the very famous scene early in the movie where the city slickers are trying to find locals that will drive their cars down to where they plan to end their river trip to meet them once the trip's over. And the Ronnie Cox character has brought an acoustic guitar along with him and starts playing a back and forth, a call and response, so to speak, with a local uh, young man who's playing the banjo who it's quite obvious is mentally challenged and i i even have always drawn the drawn the uh, assumption he's inbred don't you seth it could be yeah because it did again it goes back to no teeth Tropes. and such it, 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 it was like they were probably all part of the same extended family right right you kind of get to as we say around these parts they got a family tree but it don't fork much right <laughs> i think you're kind of led to believe that and this has become an iconic scene in all of american cinema and Ronnie Cox, the actor, did play guitar, but he was not as proficient as Eric Weisberg, who played the guitar on the track that is included on the, the soundtrack. And the banjo, though the actor they cast had the look they wanted, his fretting hand was not believable. So they actually hired a local bluegrass musician from North Carolina who 
basically ran his arm up the sleeve of, of, of the actor's costume and put it on the neck of the banjo to make the sound. And then they used different camera angles and cinema tricks to, to, to make it seamless. And I did not know that until years and years later. And it just, to me, is like a, a great example of the magic of, of filmmaking. What say ye? Yeah, if you look closely at that scene, you'll see the kid's arm. Like, like you don't see his elbow. You, you see his arm right. coming up from whatever porch wall he's sitting behind. And mm. it, it's still very convincing. If you didn't know that that was another arm, it was somebody else's arm, it looked convincing enough that, right. uh, that, it, that it was the same person. And Ronnie Cox, like you said about him, he does play guitar, and he does hit the notes. But like you said, for soundtrack purposes, you don't need somebody who just knows the, the notes. you got to still hire the professional musician, you might say. Yeah, and, and he was good enough that, that they could do close-ups of his fretting hand and a player could believe, okay, yeah, he's actually got it. He's actually fingered the chord correctly. But there are a few scenes that, once again, you can't tell. It's actually a stand-in with a wig on and wearing the same a stunt, a stunt guitarist double, so to speak, <laughs> for the shots from behind Ronnie Cox is actually him playing and playing at speed. So this went on to be a monster hit. It was a crossover hit. It was a big hit on the country charts, big hit on the, the pop charts. Uh, problem is they didn't get permission from the original composer and that was settled out of court. He was given a, a credit in the, in the movie credits, but uh, I don't know if that would happen nowadays. <laughs> you could take a piece of music that had been previously written and recorded, go ahead and do your own version. And then wouldn't even, there would, there would be a lawsuit long before it got to that point. I think nowadays, don't you Seth? Absolutely. With, with the way copyright laws have been written over recent years, it's a similar thing as to why, so many local wrestling shows would play actual songs for bumper music and such. and Sure. Or wrestlers would use it for entrance music. And now if you watch on the WWE Network, they dub in a lot of the current stuff or they'll dub in mm. generic rock music over the mm -hmm. copyrighted music that the wrestlers will be coming out to. Sure, sure, yeah. Don't want to get off on a wrestling tangent, but this is where you got to give Paul Heyman credit in the early days of ECW in the 90s when these – copyright laws were first being put into place that Seth's talking about, that he was actually able to broker deals with the recording labels that allowed him on his nationally syndicated television program to have have the real music on there. Like, I guess the most famous is probably Dick Dale's Miserloo, which had found popularity at that time due to its inclusion on the Pulp Fiction soundtrack. Mm -hmm. And that would have, that back in the day when we were kids watching wrestling, I saw that stuff all the time on my local Regional wrestling. The Road Warriors used Iron Man. Rock, Rock and Roll Express used Rock and Roll King by ELO. I guess they weren't worried about getting sued over playing copyrighted music on local syndicated television. But when you go national, you run into the threat of somebody finding out that wants to sue you. Another thing I wanted to add before we wrap up, move on to our second film, is the stunt work. My understanding, based on my research into this, a lot of, especially Burt Reynolds, but all of the, all of the guys did a lot of their own stunts. Have you ever done any research on that or, or heard, ever seen a documentary or anything that's talked about the stunt work involved in this film? I know that Burt Reynolds did have somewhat of a career as a stuntman. I don't know if it was before he got into acting. I know he'd done some of his own stunts before. So mm -hmm. I don't know how much of this was stuntmen and how much of it was the actors. But it wouldn't surprise me if Burt at least did some of the, the stunts. Yeah. They did most of their stunts, and they did it without insurance. <laughs> mm -hmm. Which, uh, guerrilla filmmaking, to say the least. It's just... I don't know if it was because of budgetary reasons or these were all young actors who had a little bit of machismo naturally. If it was the director who wanted to get the realism, 
or the fact that southern states are 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 non-union states and they like i said they filmed this in south carolina and georgia so they didn't need to use union labor i think it's probably a combination of all three but there's also a very famous scene in the movie where the where early on in the canoe trip the four gentlemen get get caught in a some rapids that they're not really skilled enough as canoeists to handle and it leads to one of the canoes getting broken in half and the other capsizing and they even tried using like mannequins for one scene mm-hmm. and when they would watch the dailies they would say the mannequin that stood in like Burt Reynolds character looked like a mannequin sitting in a, in a canoe <laughs> and this had gone on and they were pressed for time so Burt basically said fuck it I'll do it myself and he did do it and about damn near drowned uh, in the process and when they watched the dailies they asked they asked some of the the decision makers and what'd you think this was the live Burt Reynolds it still looks like a mannequin sitting in a canoe <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> it is what it is I, I think that I, personally I think some, the, the rock climbing scene that John Voigt does where he's you know, trying to sneak up on the on the uh, on the hillbillies as they're raping Ned Beatty I believe he 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 literally injured himself in that scene and did but he did do his own stunt climbing up the rock this is a pretty scary dangerous stuff I know these are things that I've done but I'm not an actor on a movie scene doing a job i'm i'm a individual doing it as my own entertainment and my own my own enjoyment my own hobby and knowing the risks i take i can't imagine nowadays i would think a lot of it would be cgi and wire work wouldn't you yeah and because when you're shooting a movie it goes back to what we keep saying about actors acting to please directors he's probably trying to scale that mountain in a way that would please the director visually for the shot that he wants to get mm-hmm. it was a pretty tense set from all my research, because you've got this young director, you've got a, a young screenplay writer who I think this is the first time one of his works has been turned into a movie. You've got these young actors, a lot of testosterone on the set. And it is almost in a self-fulfilling prophecy way that it would get that way on the set, because I think that's an element and theme of, of the overall theme of the movie is man giving into his bestial side. And here they are out in, out in the backwoods filming all these alpha males, and they kind of they kind of become that on set. Actually, it's kind of fascinating. I guess that's another another topic for another time. But it almost is a a brief real life study in human psychology, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I know it got to the point where James Dickey, the screenplay writer, showed up on set. I believe it was the, it was the the scene in the aforementioned graveyard. He showed up on set drunk and got into a fist fight with Borman, the director. And he's a Dickey's a large man. And easily won the easily won the fist fight, even though he was drunk. And I believe Borman had to go to the hospital. He bloodied his nose and lost a couple of teeth. But they made up and became friends. And Borman even gave him a small cameo as the, as the sheriff at the end. So the sheriff you see telling Burt Reynolds at the end of the film, "Don't come back here." That is James Dickey. That is the guy who hmm. wrote the uh, wrote wrote the screenplay. But regardless, if you have not seen this movie, you really need to see it. Go into it with the understanding that it has some extremely disturbing scenes in it. It is not what you think of as horror. There's no ghosts. There's no supernatural elements. There's not a hockey mask wearing killer stalking nubile young teenagers smoking pot and fucking. It's it's it is a just a very raw and brutal look at survival. And I think there's a lot of themes there. I think it's one of those films that will continue to be researched, continue to be to be studied. It was nominated for, I think, three Academy Awards, like four or five Golden Globes. 
we both have talked about it. It was absolutely beautiful cinematography, beautiful scenery. If you're a Burt Reynolds fan, it's a definite because you need to see he could be a very serious and good actor. I think this movie, more than anything else, is probably the movie that cemented Hollywood's belief that he could, quote unquote, lead a film and be a leading man, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the best way I can describe how you could call this movie a horror movie is because it's believable. It's, yes. Yeah, there's no undead slasher or anything like that. But when you get into those slasher films, a lot of them can be unbelievable. So they can still be entertaining. But when the surroundings are believable, it can get you involved. It can gross you in. And then you care about who lives and who dies. Like you were talking about, a lot of these slasher horror movies, they work in a rural setting. They work when they're in the middle of nowhere in, in, in a deep forest. It's kind of hard to do a slasher movie in the middle of town. Because right. there's a whole lot of other people around with weapons that could help out. I mean, I think all the closest we've probably gotten to that was when you had later filmmakers start placing Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, and they start placing it in suburban America. But even then, there's still this caveat of leaving your endangered victim, so to speak, vulnerable. Nightmare on Elm Street, they're in their sleep. They're dreaming. And in, in the Halloween, it's on Halloween night when – so much mm -hmm. craziness is going on, and people are wearing costumes anyway. So there's still an element there that you can see how a killer would effectively stalk victims. But it is what it is. But I, I'm sure this is a thumbs up, and this is a, a recommendation from Seth. It's Deliverance, without a doubt. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's an absolute classic. I, I, if you're listening to this podcast, I, I seriously doubt you'll be disturbed by some of the imagery and themes in it. But anybody thinking about showing it to a, a kid – or somebody with more delicate uh, sensibilities, just be warned. <laughs> well, we're going to okay. fast forward now uh, 31 years to 2003 and to a movie that was a start of a, of, a, of a franchise that, much like a lot of other horror franchises, I personally believe with each successive sequel has had diminishing returns. But I think the original was very good. It wasn't great, It was it, it wasn't, but it also wasn't trying to to break any new ground like Deliverance was. And that would be the original entry into the Wrong Turn franchise. Now, I was, am I was amazed when you told me, Seth, you actually have seen this film. Yeah, yeah. It's one of the movies that a friend and I, we just kind of lay on the floor in the apartment while eating pizza and watching horror movies. And so that's uh, that was just one of the ones that we watched. So stuff like Jeepers right. Creepers and some of the other. Now, I, I think we can agree Wrong Turn is much more of your standard horror movie than the elevated horror that is Deliverance. <laughs> I exactly, can go in yeah. agreement on that. Yeah, this is one of those where they go to the very creative ways to try to kill people. And I think right. we both kind of at the same time talked about one of the kills that took place next to a tree branch, like, like they were in the trees. And yeah. definitely one of the more memorable deaths of horror movies. Yeah, and when we get to it, I'll, I'll talk about the, the camera shot and why I liked that kill so much. But Deliverance kind of set the, the, the table for this idea of backwater and backwoods terror for movies that would be expanded upon with things like Friday the 13th and Texas Chainsaw Massacre and other films like that. Wrong Turn is not trying to reinvent the wheel. It's just taking what these other, those other earlier films had and just creating a new set of killers, and I did say killers plural, <laughs> and putting them in backwoods area and having them stalk nubile young in this in this case college students who are doing drugs and, and fucking so it's much more if that's your if that's your jam if that's your your cup of tea 
then this movie is going to be more much your al- up, up your alley than Deliverance is. But it deals with uh, a group of medical students who go up, or I cannot remember why they're going, where they're heading, but they wind up driving through rural West Virginia. Let me be honest, I've, I've wrestled a lot in West Virginia. Most of West Virginia is rural. <laughs> it just, it's a state that that's, it is what it is. One of my wrestling buddies is from West Virginia, and West Virginia is a very small state geographically speak and he's joked that actually it's probably as big as texas but you'd have to flatten out all the mountain roads and straighten them all out to see how big it really is because <laughs> <laughs> it does have a lot of windy up and down roads because they are literally going around all the mountains in, in in the state but they do take the titular wrong turn at some point they they, they we get a, a a common trope early in the movie where you have the the character that is the the oracle the prophet the voice of of gloom and doom, so to speak, which is kind of a trope at this point in, in horror movies. Uh, don't go this way. Stay on this road. But they, they're running late for time. There's been like a landslide or a car wreck, and one of the, the, the dumb kids decides, we're, gonna, we're, gonna, we're looking at a map here. We're going to turn here, even though he told them not to. So they take right. a wrong turn. They, they get stopped by another car wreck, and pretty soon on they realize pretty quick on, because they're, they're smart. I mean, obviously they're smart. They're medical students. They're not dummies, right? This car didn't crash by its own. That it was, it was, it was. There was booby trapped. It was set up with a, with a, with a homemade strip of spikes, like the police will use to stop vehicles in high speed chases. And pretty soon after that, we get the, like I said earlier, killers. And there's three brothers that are without question, unlike the banjo player from Deliverance, where there's some left up to the audience's interpretation. There's nothing left up to the interpretation here. These three guys are inbred. Well, you, you, I'm sure you you got that right from the jump too, didn't you? Yeah, and you you were talking about the the person that warns the party not to go there yeah, the oracle, to go that so way. To speak. <laughs> yeah, it's usually some weird local that's got a, a few pots loose, or right. it's the religious zealot. Right, right. Of course, one of the, probably the most famous of that would be Crazy Ralph from the first two the first two Friday the Thirteenth movies. You're all doomed. <laughs> That that kind of created that trope. Like I said, this is not a movie that's trying to reinvent the wheel, ladies and gentlemen. It's it, it's a standard slasher movie. It, it looks and feels a lot like your typical late 90s, early 2000 horror movies. It has a good-looking cast. Elijah Dushku is in it, who I absolutely love, and I think she's gorgeous. And by this point, she is actually a woman. She's not the kid she was when we first saw her in True Lies in the 90s. Mm-hmm. But it, it's from there on out, it becomes your typical slasher movie where you have these three hillbillies chasing your your good looking nubile college kids who now realize they're being stalked. And then it's just it's just uh, it's, it's your like you said, like you said earlier, Seth, creative ways to kill the characters and creative ways to take them out, so to speak. And then and it's a long chase. There's even a scene where. Where it's it, it, you realize that there there actually is like a mother to these three inbred brothers, and they're actually they're actually trying to capture the Elijah Dushku character. I, I think it's kind of intimated to go basically take her back to their cabin and just rape her until she's pre- impregnated. Is that kind of the vibe you got? Yeah, yeah, and I I also remember when they are hiding in the in the cabin, and right. I think it's Elijah Dushku that's under the bed, and she sees one of the inbreds just sawing the limbs of her friend that just got killed. Yeah, yeah. Um, there, there's a lot of parallels, I think, to because you are dealing with the family dynamic as opposed to and multiple killers as opposed to one killer. I think there's a lot of, of a lot of parallels to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre franchise. I, I'm sure you understand why I'm going down that road. 
Yeah, yeah, I, I can see that. And I know when the characters are running around and we're watching it, one of my friends is like, yeah, they should make a break for it. And I think I was watching this with my brother as well, and he just said uh-huh. something to the effect of, with, all the, with, with everything these guys shoot at all day, every day, they're probably crack shots by now. So running away might not be a very good option. <laughs> well, your brother's probably not wrong, Seth, because when you live in a world where, where what you eat is what you grow and what you hunt yourself, you can kind of see where he's coming from. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not like I think that the – I don't think the three, the, three, the three brothers in wrong turn just take a hop, skip, and a jump down to local Walmart or grocery, station when the, or grocery store when they need to eat something. Don't you agree? So, <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, but the the death scene that we're talking about later on in the movie that we mentioned earlier that I th- is one of my favorite deaths in a slasher movie, quite frankly, because of the way it was filmed. Eventually, some of the characters have been killed off, but some of them are still running. And if I remember the right, they make their way all the way to the top of the mountain to an old ranger station. And uh, they try to escape, and it involves them jumping out a window and landing quite unceremoniously in a bunch of pine trees and hurting themselves and the killers catch up to one of the females what i thought originally was a decapitation scene where they cut her fucking head off with an axe with a you know the old paul bunyan two-bitted axe but the way they do the camera angle you see a close-up of the girl's eyes you hear the thunk the sound of the of, of the of the axe going through human flesh bone and then into wood and you it's all from it's a close-up of the girl's eyes so you see this perspective of like her pupils get small. Like that's like the moment that she dies. Then they pan out and it is actually, they have, they have chopped her like right in the middle of her mouth with the ax. So the upper half of her head is essentially sitting on top of the ax, which is stuck in the tree and the rest of her body from chin down lifelessly falls to the ground out of the tree, which is, uh, it was, it was CGI, but I thought very well done. Well, obviously it had an effect on you. You remember it still, Seth, mm-hmm. don't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, it's kind of a standard by which I would judge horror deaths. I think that's probably the best way I can put it. I just thought for a movie that really isn't trying to reinvent the wheel and for <clears throat> films that, let's be honest, if you're, if you're listening to Examine the Dead, you already know this, those type of horror movies, that's their bread and butter, isn't it? Let's create a visually interesting and unique ways to, to off somebody. And, and film it in that way. And this, I think, is the quintessential kill within this film that fits that mindset. Mm-hmm. But it does have the typical final girl survives. She gets away. She fights back because she's smart and she's courageous. And she sets fire to the cabin. And, and then it even has the trope of the twist ending where you think the movie's over and a local law enforcement, local sheriff shows up to the charred remains and then – at the last second, one of the – I think they called Snaggletooth, I believe, was the name of that particular – in the credits of that particular hillbilly. His very burnt body pops up, laughs, and kills, kills, the, kills the sheriff's deputy and then goes to credits. So I would not say it's great. And like I said, every single film was a practice of diminishing returns, was not as good as the first. But like I said, I think there's five of these movies. So that any movie that merits four sequels obviously was making money. We've talked at length how slasher movies just because of the, the way they're budgeted versus the kind of money they're going to make. They're always there's going to be a market for them and there's always going to be studios that are willing to make them. You agree with that, don't you, Seth? Yeah. And looking at the first one, it had a budget of 12 million and it made 28. So it made more than more than double double its yeah. money back. Yeah. Yeah. More than double its budget. 
I think it was an attempt by by to kind of update the whole concept and blend set parts of like Friday the Thirteenth and parts of Texas Chainsaw Massacre into one movie. Do you think that's a fair a fair assessment and conclusion to come to? Yeah, and, and, and also looking at the Wikipedia entries and the IMDb entries, e- each one looks like it got a lower budget until you get to some of the ones that are like like five and I think I think there's a six and I there's one slated to come out next year as well but it seems like the budget kept getting smaller because the second one only had a four million dollar budget probably because they didn't have to worry about getting Elijah Dushku again yeah so that's another thing too is that that's an odd thing is that you have in slasher movies I think one of the the tropes at least when their heyday in the 80s was it was a no-name cast and that was part of the, the, I think the draw was there was very little character development because as time went on into the late eighties, people who liked those movies, they didn't go to, to, to root for the heroes. They went to see Jason or Freddie or pinhead or whoever kill off their victims in extremely unique ways. You were almost rooting for the bad guy. Mm-hmm. And so you didn't want, you didn't want great acting because they kind of represented motifs or archetypes, the jock, the, the, the slutty girl, the, the the brainy girl the geek whatever whereas this was a movie that was a little different where they try they actually cast a known actress a name actress in the final girl role from the shoot so that to me I think was one of the drawbacks too was because it was like I knew going into it oh she's gonna be the final girl they're not gonna kill Elijah Dushku off right I think the, the, well I'm not saying this is the only filmmaker but the first filmmaker to be ballsy enough to do that would be Alfred Hitchcock where he killed Janet Lee off what the first twenty minutes Psycho which shocked mm-hmm. everybody. She's all over the marketing. She's the name actress, and then you kill her off in the first twenty minutes. It's been, it had been done before, but it had not been done with great regularity after Psycho. And though there have been a lot of big name actors tied to slasher franchises, they usually were in the, they usually their entry into the slasher franchise was before they were known. Whether you're talking Jamie Lee Curtis or Kevin Bacon or Heather Langenkamp, they didn't become big, big name actors in Hollywood until after their 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 entry into slasher movies. So. It did try to break the rules there, but I think it removed some of the surprise elements. Like, eh, well, we know she's going to survive. You're not going to pay her whatever they paid her and then kill her off, right? Right. But I, I don't think you would as strongly suggest wrong turn as you would deliverance, but would you still suggest it if you didn't? I understand that. I, I think it's, it's, it's a middle-of-the-road tw- 2000s horror movie. Well, the movie is called Wrong Turn and is clearly a slasher film. You know what you're getting. If you think you're going to like the movie, you're probably going to like it. Although right. a quick and, a quick check while we were talking here, the first three were it's a different cast, but there's still a connection because the killers are the same. And then the, the I think it was the next two were prequels to right. So, they so were you like, could watch they, four they and were, five, and then watch one, two, and three if you wanted. If you wanted to do kind of the Star Wars type thing, the chronological as opposed to release date. Right. Yeah, and and I think I think starting with Rob Zombie's interpretation of the Michael Myers character and his remake of Halloween. And the the second and the modern Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the backstory to, to Leatherface is kind of when that got in vogue with the horror. Not sure if I'm really a fan of that, simply because I, I fell in love with these slasher villains for what they originally were. Leatherface was Gunnar Hansen. Michael Myers was it was the Nick Castle, Dick Warlock shape from part one and part two way back in the day. I don't need I don't need a retelling of how they got to be. They they just were. I, I had never. I never been one of those type fans, and and I, I've only seen a few of the Wrong Turn movies, but I did enjoy the first one. I, I think that I would suggest this. I think you're right. I think you're like I said, it's called Wrong Turn. 
you, you can tell from the cover art what you're getting into. If you think you'd like this kind of movie, you will. If you're not, if that's not your not your jam, then you probably will. Much like Deliverance, though, I think the scenery is pretty. They filmed a lot on location. It, it, so it, it's it's pretty. West Virginia is a pretty state. I, I, I can't deny that. It, it, it's beautiful mountains and and mountain streams and lakes and and it's 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 yeah there's a lot of coal mining up there but it's pretty yeah well we heard the late great don john denver sing about it right and he never even been to the state when they <laughs> when his <laughs> band when the guys in his band wrote that song but they, they were so effective in describing the beauty of the state the senate made it the state song I think the reputation of the beauty of the state of West Virginia speaks for itself right there. So anyway, wrong turn. I think both these movies are a great look. Deliverance is a great look at where kind of the start of the backwoods elements and horror are, the backwoods terror. Wrong turn franchise is more of a much more modern interpretation because there's a whole lot in between. We didn't, we've talked about titles that we didn't fully review because I didn't feel like we needed to. Everybody who listens to this podcast has seen some of the Friday, thir- Friday 13th stuff. They've seen some of the um, Texas Chainsaw Massacre stuff. They've probably seen things like The Burning. They've probably seen things like Sleepaway Camp. Mm-hmm. So we, we, you've seen all that stuff. I think this kind of bookends where they are now to, to kind of the beginning of it. And that's why those are the two movies that we chose to do on this month's Gruesome Twosome. So just as a quick, quick review, Deliverance, without question, Two thumbs up from both me and Seth is a a definite must watch for any film junkie, whether you're a horror fan or not. Wrong turn. That's up to you. If you like that stuff, check it out. If not, not. I'd say a thumbs in the middle on that one. Right. So there you go. There's there's our look at at, at backwoods terror. We'll be back with our with our next gruesome twosome. We have I haven't figured out what theme we want to do, and Seth hasn't given any good, good suggestions. So drop us an email, drop us a suggestion on the on 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 the Facebook page for Examine the Dead. Let us know. We we we're enjoying ever since we started doing this format change to where we're theming the gruesome twosomes. I think it's been more enjoyable for both of us because I don't have to talk all the time, and I think Seth kind of enjoys. I know Seth enjoys research, so I think you kind of enjoy the research aspect on sometimes on some of these films since we've gone to theme. Is that correct? Yeah, the other shows that we do, I kind of do the lion's share of the planning, whereas this one, all I have to do is, okay, what are we going to watch? All right. Right, right. <laughs> I can do that. Just, I'm even nice enough sometimes to tell you where you can find it streaming or how cheap it is to rent if you need to rent it. So anyway, we're, we're going we're gonna to go pay some bills right now and go to commercial. And when we come back on the other side, we're going to have returning to the, to the airwaves here on Examine the Dead podcast, one of our favorite guests, the Reverend Dan Wilson. He's going to talk briefly a little bit about his own podcast, it's Seeking Human Victims. But he and I and Seth are going to have a really interesting discussion because it is December and it is that time of year. We're going to talk about the trend and history of horror movies based around Christmas and the holidays. We'll be right, right back, Freaky Darlings. Attention all time lords and ladies. Geekville Radio presents Examining the Doctor, a weekly look at everybody's favorite time lord, the Doctor. Join Mark and Seth as they bring their signature blend of knowledge and humor to favorite and not-so-favorite episodes of Doctor Who. From Hartnell to Capaldi, Examining the Doctor provides episode commentaries for classic and current Doctor Who fans alike. Examining the Doctor, available on iTunes, Stitcher, and at geekgoradio.com. And now, a look into the crystal ball. 
Welcome back, my freaky darlings. I hope you everything went okay during the break. We're back once again with Into the Crystal Ball, like we talked about before. We have a special guest for this segment. He is no stranger to the airwaves here of Examining the Dead. Uh, he is one of my old wrestling buddies. Uh, did a great horror-themed manager gimmick as the Reverend Dan Wilson, who also has his own extremely, extremely well-done horror podcast that I listen to all the time called Seeking Human Victims. Uh I would like to welcome once again the Reverend Dan Wilson. How you doing, brother? <laughs> Happy Horror Days, Crazy Train. Thank you so much for having me back on Examining the Dead. Well, you know, I, I when I kind of was talking to Seth and we were formatting this this holiday themed episode, I said, you know, we got to call we got to call Dan Seth. I said, you know, he's done several holiday themed horror stuff on it seeking human victims and you're mm-hmm. kind of an expert or at least have done more research than even i've done on this stuff which is why i wanted to have you on you probably know a little bit more about the history of horror themed ho- uh, horror movies or, around the holidays enlighten us brother tell us what tell me what's tell me what, what what we need to know about the history of horror themed movies around the holidays Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Christmas horror movies are really my shit, honestly, and I think it goes back to childhood. One of the first films I saw in the theater was Gremlins, and I also saw the trailer and one of the articles about all of the protests on Entertainment Tonight about Silent Night, Deadly Night. So I was affected by Christmas horror at a young age. And even, like, Mickey's Christmas Carol was one of my favorite childhood cartoons, and it has these ghostly horror elements. So it's like, I I always related horror and the holidays together. And then come to find out, the spooky part of the holiday season has really been a tradition for many, many years. And it's really only been in the most recent of centuries that they've started kind of phasing that out for a more holly jolly commercial appetite, if you know what I'm saying. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. But, but when you talk about the history of holiday horror movies, I actually for seeking human victims and our annual Christmas special, which this year we did silent night, deadly night. And that episode is out available now. Wherever you find podcasts, uh, we did a little research on the history of Christmas-themed horror movies, and I found the first recorded Christmas horror movie was, guess what? A Christmas Carol adaptation. It was a silent film from 1901 called Scrooge or Marley's Ghost from the United Kingdom. Also, it was even British. Excellent. Makes sense. When you think about it, A Christmas Carol, I mean, that fits as a horror story, especially when you deal with Jacob Marley and the ghost of Christmas future and all that. You know, I never thought of it that way. I could speak as, you know, one of my two degrees is in English. I always was a fan of Dickens, but that's probably my favorite Dickens story. And that shouldn't be a shocker since I've been a horror fan since I was five and saw The Omen by accident. But that's another story for another time. Um, Yeah, it's always had that supernatural bent to it. And you know, I was motivated also being a history major to look into the history of Christmas. And, I, you know, I, I can totally back up what you're saying there. It's only been in the past couple hundred, 200 years where we have moved away from the supernatural elements of Christmas to the more family friendly version that we have now in Western culture. So I'm sorry, Dan, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no point. worries. Like I, I enjoy the conversation from both of you and, and thank you for having me. Um, no, I agree wholeheartedly though. Like it's, it, it, it's time to put 
the spooky back in the holidays. Make Christmas spooky again. Right, that's, right. That's my new campaign slogan uh, I mean, for, I, for the I, holidays. I, I don't know how old the song, uh, uh, the, the Andy Williams song, Most Wonderful Time of the Year is, but it uh-huh. even mentions it there. But it even says scary ghost stories around the fire. Yep, sure does. And so, I mean, we should, we should know, but whoever wrote the, the lyrics for that song, they understood it, you know? And that's a pretty happy, friendly, jolly song, not a scary song. So, Yeah, it's wild, and that's always kind of captivated me as a kid. And back to what Seth was saying about A Christmas Carol, it's like like that scene, and no matter what version of A Christmas Carol, the scene where he's visited by Marley's ghost, and then the ghost of Christmas yet to come, are always terrifying, no matter what version of A Christmas Carol it is. Do you have a favorite? version i mean there's been so many adaptations you already mentioned mickey's christmas carol but is there any other like live action ones you really like <sighs> the original c t- or uh, the the george c scott version excellent really good one mm-hmm. yeah that's a really good uh, one. i think the muppets christmas carol is <laughs> one of the best to be <laughs> honest it is good it is really kind of out of character for me i guess but like i honestly like that movie gets me like a little misty eyed every time. It's, right. it's really awesome. Yeah, really well done. What about you, Seth? You got it. You really like? Well, you just mentioned the Mickey's uh, Christmas Carol, so that's that's the one I was the most familiar with, and probably quite frankly because I'm a Goofy fan. And making Goofy Jacob Marley, I think, is just genius when it comes to <laughs> <laughs> casting, so to speak. I can see that's, that. That somehow Jacob Marley yeah. is well a goof. You know, he stumbles yeah, over himself. Yeah. You know, and all that. <laughs> So there is there. Yeah, there's definitely some room for some, you know, some slapstick comedy there. I agree with you, Dan. I love the George C. Scott version. Uh, The one that was Americanized where Henry Winkler, the Fonz himself, plays Scrooge. That was a pretty good version. Um, Yeah, the one was Scrooge, for that matter, with Bill. Oh, oh, that's classic. That's a classic. And and I would even I would even throw out there Patrick Stewart's one man show. I mean, I know he did a TV movie version, but he's done a one man version of it. That's actually really good, too. I like I liked the adaptation of that. That was you know full cast. That was a really good. One. I was going to mention that one. And there's one, and I, I the name of it is just simply Scrooge. And I'm, I I can't remember any of the actors. It's a British production from mm-hmm. the 50s, so it's it's a contemporary of the early Hammer stuff. Yeah, I know, outside I, of the Mickey's Christmas Carol, that's the one I saw first. I mean, I saw the Mickey one first, but yeah. I remember seeing that one in in the early 80s, probably on Channel 60 or something. Right, that was like I was gonna say the local UHF station here in the upstate of South Carolina played that every Christmas, and so that one for probably for if nothing else, nostalgic reason has uh, you know sentimental value to me. Plus, for a 1950s movie, the practical effects on the Coast of Christmas Past looking like the Grim Reaper and the skeletal hand when he points at, at Scrooge's tombstone, that shit scared the fuck out of me that's like <laughs> yes. a 10 year old kid you know i was like shit but i slept i slept with one eye open for a couple nights after seeing that the first time but isn't that what good horror is supposed to do to you absolutely but i mean we you were talking about that was the first was this silent adaptation of christmas carol dan there had to be more until we got to where we are today what were some of the other things your research found on holiday themed horror movies after that oh yeah of course the eight million iterations of a christmas carol with none withstanding there were were a few other 
things here in the 20s and 30s and 40s, but nothing that made a great impact. There was a 1944 Universal movie called Christmas Holiday. Not really a true horror film. It was more of a detective noir movie. There were movies like Curse of the Cat People and Psycho and Dead of Night, where Christmas was kind of in the background, but they weren't really about Christmas. So you really have to get up to the 70s before this subgenre starts taking off. There was uh, a movie called Whoever Slew Auntie Rue from the UK in 1971. (laughs) The most famous from the early 70s is Tales from the Crypt from the UK and Amicus Pictures. Uh, where the killer Santa scene in in that anthology is, of course, based around Christmas and the first incarnation of a killer Santa that we see. Right. We we, we did in our Halloween, all of our podcasts were Halloween themed in October. We inducted Amicus Productions into uh, Lesser No Geek Hall of Fame. And, of course, Amicus Productions was the production company that made that Tales from the Crypt. We talked about on that episode of, of Lesser No Geek Hall of Fame was – Excellent movie, by the way. But everything Amicus did was, but I digress. Yeah. yeah, I remember I put that one on my list of Amicus movies to see after we did that show. There you go. Yeah, that was the classic. And that segment was remade in the Tales from the Crypt series in 92, I believe, with Dr. Giggles himself, as well as the Scarecrow from Dark Knight of the Scarecrow, Larry Drake, <laughs> who was a great character actor, played the killer Santa in the remake of that segment. And then, of course, that takes us up to 1974. Uh, we, we do have a couple other things prior to that. There's a Home for the Holidays from 1972. That's an American right. TV Christmas horror. And then Silent Night, Bloody Night, also from 1972. But then up to 1974, we get Black Christmas, which really kind of explodes that subgenre, not just of Christmas and holiday horror, but other like holiday-themed slasher movies and just slasher movies in general kind of explode out of the popularity of black christmas now with that coming out in 74 you're gonna have to help me here on dates did that precede or postcede the original texas chainsaw let's take a look here i see texas chainsaw was also 74 i believe but i can't remember month release dates that's what confuses me on that let's see i'm taking a look here I don't have that one committed to memory. The year, yes, but not necessarily the month. So October of 74, so Texas Chainsaw Massacre was just before that. Yeah, because for those that don't know, and if they don't know it, I don't know why they're listening to this podcast. But for those that don't know, yes, Halloween always gets the credit with being the first slasher. I've always said no. If if it's anything, it's either Texas Chainsaw Massacre or Black Christmas, depending on your, your cup of tea. What say you? Yeah, well, some Dan. people even argue that it was uh, Psycho Mario Bava's Twitch of the Death Nerve, or right? Bay of Blood, as Blood. it was also called, or uh, Carnage, like, yeah, or Carnage. Didn't want those movies they had like nine names, yeah, depending on where it was released. <laughs> <laughs> it was Italian, so it was not an American or nor even North American. And I, and I cannot, I cannot argue that because when I when I highlighted that movie two years ago during my thirty one days of Halloween. Can't deny the fact that the double impalement uh, spear stab scene from uh, Friday the Thirteenth Part Two was directly stolen from that movie, so it it had an influence of nothing else. So yeah, no, that that's a stone cold fact. So what do you it's say? That do you think do you, do you think it's Black Christmas or do you think it's it's Texas Chainsaw Massacre more so than Halloween? That would be the first what we would call a slasher movie. I, I gotta say honestly, a Bay of Blood probably over. I, well, I, I, I would say Texas. I, my, Personal Peeping Tom, which is before all of those in 62. 
That's that's a good call out. Even psychos be called the father. So it's really hard, but I'd say somewhere between Black Christmas and Halloween, it becomes a genre. Like, right. So like oh, those other right. things might have been one offs or things that happened that paved the way. But I think by Black Christmas, it becomes a, I don't really consider Texas Chainsaw a slasher in a lot of ways because sure. it's just it breaks a lot of those rules. It's not just one killer. You have the whole family dynamic. Right. There's this whole political commentary. There's a whole lot more going on in that movie than most of your standard slashers. So I, I would say Black Christmas to answer your question directly. <laughs> well, I always what I this is my take on it is that if you want to go with the mindset that a slasher has to be date specific or around a certain time of year. Because that kind of became the norm with Friday the 13th, with Halloween, with whatever. Black Christmas started that trend where it's just the the time. And if you want to go where uh, daytime, you weren't even safe during the sunlight and the trope of of young people. They they both had that. But the sunlight thing that, yeah, Texas Chainsaw brought that in for the first time. This idea of you're not even safe when the sun's out. So, but that's that's either here or there. I think that. They're both great movies, and and they're a must-see for any horror junkie, both of them. Agreed. And I think – so What where Black Christmas is important is that it does start this subgenre of holiday-themed horror movies. Like Halloween really isn't possible without Black Christmas because they kind of take that concept and put it on a different holiday. And you saw like every production company and studio throughout the early 80s were starting to try to grab up their own holidays to make movies. Oh, yeah. You had My Bloody Valentine. You had Thanksgiving. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, and yeah, also on and so Prom forth. Night. So Prom night. I mean, there's really, a million of them. Yeah. yeah, it opened up so much for that. But speaking specifically of Christmas-themed horror, that still continues through the early 80s, and there's a lot of really important pieces of the subgenre. Christmas Evil from 1980, which is yes. John Waters' favorite movie. That's a fucking great underrated Christmas movie about a killer Santa. And it's Great. not really a traditional slasher either. It really shows this like progression of a guy kind of going postal from being disgruntled at his job. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's a classic. It's oft forgotten, but people – I don't even know if it's available. Any, is it on Shudder? Do you know? Yeah, it is on Shudder. Joe Bob Briggs actually showed it just on his Christmas special this past weekend. So it, oh, okay, it's there on okay. demand now. Highly I'm recommended. Not gonna, I'm not going to lie. I haven't checked out Shudder in about a week. I've been busy doing other things. So I haven't really. <laughs> but it is what it is. Oh, yeah. No, they, well, they got lots of great Christmas horror to check out on there that I, I can recommend for sure. They've got uh, Silent Night, Deadly Night 2, and just like I could go on and on. There's there's tons of stuff on there. Well, around, around the same time, another one of my favorites I'm sure you've seen as well is New Year's Evil. You've seen that one, haven't you? Yep, definitely seen New Year's. That's a, a pretty underrated flick. That's, that's oh, a yeah. Flasher. That was like, what, 81, 82, I think it was when that came out? Yeah, they came out in 80. Mm. So it's right at the start of the decade. Okay. Yes, and they're like, this is really like the golden era of slasher films, but like that that takes a different path. If you're looking at the Christmas horror path, really the next big Christmas horror movie is Gremlins. Oh, but yeah. 84 just starts throwing them out. You get Silent Night, Deadly Night in 1984, and there's another one called Don't Open Till Christmas that's a pretty underrated oh, yeah. British Very movie. underrated. 
very kind of flips the script, right? You're used to the yeah. killer Santa at this point, but that actually is a killer that is knocking off Santas, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Well, it, it's you're too young to remember this. So, Seth, I kind of want your your take on this. You, of course, have read about it being a horror fan. The furor that was started over the marketing material for Silent Night, Deadly Night. Do you remember that at all, Seth? Yeah, yeah, because it was a whole thing of kids would think it was going to be a Christmas movie because they see Santa and all that. And even as I was 8, 9, maybe 10 years old at the time, even I was like, well, I don't like a scary Christmas movie, so it kind of bothered me a little bit. But at the same time, it's like I know that horror movies weren't meant for kids. I'm not meant to see this movie. (laughs) Even at right. that, even at that age, it's like I didn't understand it, but I understood it well enough because my my parents did a very good job of shielding me from horror. And I'm not saying they were wrong or anything like that. I you know it's just like I see where they were coming from, and I, I see that they had their what they thought was my best interest in mind. So I I have right. no, I, I have no problem with that up, upbringing. Well, well, that coming out in 1984, I'm I'm 14 years old. I am I am the prime target demographic they're shooting. Mm-hmm. High schoolers and college kids. And I remember the Fuhrer being over the famous poster, which was later on the cover cover art for the, the, the VHS box at the rental places, was this picture of, of Santa, Santa's arm coming out of a chimney wielding a blood-soaked, double-bitted Paul Bunyan axe. That had the PRMC types like up in fucking arms they were just so upset and this is also in the middle of the satanic panic of the 80s and everything that i loved and that when dan would get to be that age i know he loved heavy metal music and horror movies they were like public enemy number one so it was it was ridiculous and i think like much like frank zappa in his a testimony to the Congress about the censorship of music said, if you say something is forbidden, you're actually going to help it out because more kids are going to want to see it. I think that movie benefited from what well, you've looked at the hard numbers, Dan. Am I right in thinking that? Oh yeah. No, there's, there's a lot to talk about that. We go into great detail on our silent night, deadly night episode about the controversy. And like, it came out the same time as nightmare on Elm street, the same week. And it was on a pace to outgross it, but the controversy got it pulled from theater. So it didn't have the gross that they thought it would have in the theaters because it got yanked due to all of that. But it did have a pretty successful life on home video as a result. And I was old enough to remember it just barely. I remember seeing an article on Entertainment Tonight. I just remember Uh, you had to be a young kid. Yeah, I was little. I I remember seeing a thing on Entertainment Tonight about the protests about it. And I remember seeing the actual commercial. And what got them in the biggest hot water were two things. There was a commercial that aired during an episode of Little House on the Prairie (laughs) during the day. All right, Michael Landon. (laughs) Another one in Milwaukee that aired during a Green Bay Packers game on Sunday. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what really fucked them on that. But yeah, check out our episode. We we go into all the gory details of that. And it's interesting you bring up the fact it was on pace to out-earn Nightmare on Elm Street. I know it seems hard in 2020 to look back and think that how, but if you lived in that era as a horror fan, Silent Night, Deadly Night is a great movie, but it is a, a very simple old school slasher movie. Nightmare on Elm Street has a lot of concepts and themes that are a lot deeper than that. So I could see how that would have appealed to a much broader audience 
but like you said, it, there was the controversy. So if you're a horror maven, the only thing left's Nightmare, and and Nightmare is great. I don't think I have to sell either one of you on how awesome a film it is. I'm just saying I get for that time period why, in comparison, one of those Starlight Daylight might have done better initially because it just was easier to digest, wasn't as deep. Oh yeah, but, and it too spawned a franchise, not quite as popular as the Nightmare franchise. And no, no, frankly, no. Those movies kind of fall off a cliff as we talk about in the episode after the second one. Which I mean, a lot of people hate the second one because it's mostly a clip show. But I just I love what they add to it with Ricky being the narrator and kind of going nuts at the end. You don't uh, like Garbage Day? Come on. Oh yeah, I love it, but a lot of people don't. But Still then, one of the greatest scenes ever, movie. It's, yeah, no, it's, it, it's great, and it made that whole meme and everything, but then it goes to Silent Night, Deadly Night 3, where Bill Mosley is playing Ricky, and he they're trying to copy, like, Friday the 13th, Part 7, where there's a girl with psychic powers. and that, So it's know, Evil it Santa has, versus Carrie, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting. And then there's Part 4, which is about a coven of witches that also has Clint Howard and barely mentions christmas at all but it's it's something and then there's part ever, five I don't, I don't think i've ever seen part four i've seen part five i don't think i've ever seen part four it's worth a watch it's got some weird shit in it but well uh, it brings in the supernatural a little bit with witches so that's kind of cool but the toy maker with mickey rooney is like the it directed by brian yuzna and it's really fucking weird like he plays this geppetto character and there's this evil pinocchio and it's just really fucking dumb but oh, it's, it's, it's worth it's a brian- watch it's Brian Yesna, it's gonna be worth a watch. That's he's one of my favorite underrated filmmakers, so Yeah, well the effects especially. Like anytime he's involved, like the the effects are usually dope. Probably probably had uh Screaming Mad George. George. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There you go. If you're not sold on Brian Yesna, I suggest one movie, Society. Watch it and you'll be sold. Yeah. But I digress. Sure. I digress. Well, I mean, so, what what happens in the 90s? I don't really remember a lot in the 90s, but I was really busy in college at the time. And this would have been when you were in high school, so you really would have been the target audience at that time. Yeah, there wasn't a lot in terms of Christmas horror in the 90s. There was Jack Frost from 1997, apparently a movie from 96 called Santa Claus. I don't fucking remember that at all. So C-L-A-W-S, I guess? Yes, but Jack Frost about the killer snowman, which is like one of those awesome. like intentionally bad horror movies. Which I love that movie. I love that movie. Know, but I like it. God, I, yeah, I think that had a young Shannon Elizabeth in it before American Pie. Correct. It does. Yes. It had that great had that great cover art on the DVD VHS cover that had the little I can't remember what they call that. The where where if you moved it from whatever angle you were looking at it, it would have like the regular snowman, then the evil snowman. It would change. That was I thought was brilliant marketing, but yeah, no, that was great. It, and then like once we get into the two thousands, it really kind of blows open. Like it becomes a true subgenre where every at least year or so you're getting a new Christmas horror movie. Some of them are pretty good, like Dead End, which has Lynn Shay and Ray Wise in it, which is this really creepy, like road trip Christmas horror movie. And then you have the not so good, like the Ginger Dead Man with Gary Busey. <laughs> well, you and me talked about that off mic a few weeks ago, Dan, and I asked you about it. And as you pointed out, and rightfully so, anything that has Gary Busey being batshit crazy, Gary Busey can't be that bad, can it? <laughs> It's at least worth a watch. I won't dare say it's good because it's fucking awful, but it's there's some entertainment value to be had for sure. It's, and it's and it's full moon. So come on, if you if you're into that type of stuff, you like Charles Band, 
you'll like Ginger Dough. Yeah, and then 2005 did have the Goldberg Christmas yeah, horror movie. That's the Santa's one I was going to bring up. Yeah, <laughs> and it was that was definitely a Christmas. Com- that was definitely a horror comedy, which we talk a lot about on this channel. Not as much more so than you do on on your podcast, but I know you you like horror comedy too, don't you, Dan? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's always got a place. They're very closely connected emotions. <laughs> But what I bring up about Santa's sleigh is, first off, it's funny alone that a pro wrestler is playing Santa, but it's Goldberg. And I'm sorry, but a a uh, Jewish man playing Santa Claus to me is just inherently funny. That's even before getting into him being a psychotic killer. Well, and the fact that it's politically incorrect makes me laugh, but that's it. You know? <laughs> right. And that whole opening scene of that movie with the, with the well-known actors that the, they got to play, I think it was Fran Drescher, James Caan. I can't remember all the other actors in it. That scene is so over the top. It's like a Sam Raimi Army of Darkness type over the topness. That in and of itself makes that movie worth watching to me, at least. What what say ye, Dan? Yeah, no, I'd agree. Like it's it's pretty how fucking... brutally he kills he brutally kills <laughs> like does doesn't, doesn't he fucking drown Fran Drescher in a bowl of soup or some shit? Yeah, yeah. And I think he like, I think he it's still boiling. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's still boiling, and he like I think he throws James Con in the fireplace and like kicks the flames up and lights somebody's head on fire. I'm going. And as the horror guy, I'm sitting there watching, going, "This is the fucking greatest thing I've ever seen in my life," <laughs> you know. And how many of us have not wanted to drown Fran Drescher in that that god awful voice in a bowl of boiling soup, whether we're Santa Claus or not? Come on. Yeah, no, that that was I I love that movie. I think it's pretty underrated as far as like B rated Christmas horror goes. Oh. I think some other highlights of that era: the Black Xmas remake from 2006. Yep. Like Christmas is pretty strong. I think there was another remake of it last year, which was to be kindly not as strong. <laughs> I, yeah, I, I wasn't a I wasn't as big a fan of either one of the remakes from the original. I think part of that for me is the original seventy four. We need to mention this. We mentioned it that the, the the final girl, the main girl in it, is played by by Lois Lane herself, or not Lois Lane. What's her face from from the Indiana Jones movies? Uh, Kate Allen. Olivia Hussey is the the main girl. Right, black right, right. Margot Kidder is one of the girls. Margot Kidder, that's it. It's, it, 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 was, it was Lois Lane. I think that the acting was stronger in that one by the girls, but I don't think Black Xmas was bad. And our, our regular listeners know I'm pretty big detractor of the remakes. I know you're a bigger fan of the remakes than I am, Dan, but, but I, I, mean, I do think there are good remakes. I would put that one personally right in the middle. But I still think it's worth a, a horror fan checking it out. Uh, yeah, it's uh, fun, and it's just kind of over the top, and like the kills are really ridiculous and shit. And I, I think it's a fun watch. I don't think it's I, the greatest thing ever, but it's fun. I think this is just me because it came out. Was it oh six, oh seven? It came out oh six, right? It, it's going to be one of those movies, like in the discussions that you and I have had in private, Dan, about kind of how H two O was great when it came out, but especially in comparison to Halloween. 2018 it it's very much a horror movie from the 90s it, it's it's not going to stand i kind of get a feeling that as time goes by that's the same going to be the same thing with black xmas if you like horror from that era of horror movies you're going to like it if you don't then you're not you think that's a yeah. fair criticism yeah no i think that's fair and then like as you get into the 2010s i think some of the highlights start going internationally you start seeing some foreign films that really have the best christmas horror you had rare exports from finland if you that haven't was good. seen that it's that streaming was really on good. shutter that's pretty, pretty wild <laughs> that's really good 
and 2010 director who's definitely one day going into the seeking human victims name hall of fame director dick mass from the never <laughs> netherlands uh, you sure that's not a porn star <laughs> It's, he also directed Amsterdam and Uncaged, which are great horror movies. But he did a Christmas horror movie in 2010 called Scent, or Saint as the English translation. And it's another killer Santa, more like the horseback riding Danish Saint Nicholas. And it's uh, okay. you know, also like dragging kids in chains and shit. It's pretty brutal. <laughs> Dick Mass is not afraid to murder children in movies. So. <laughs> We've talked about before uh, here on, on Examine the Dead. I can always, when I pop, when I start watching a horror movie and I see a young kid that's put in harm's way, I'll pause real quick and look up what the release date was, and that usually tells me whether the kid's going to die or not. Because <laughs> <laughs> we know anything like 84, pre-84, if they're going to kill a kid, they don't give a damn. You know? mm-hmm. <laughs> Where that yeah. kind of became taboo. And I'm, I'm not, please send me your 10,000 word hate blog post, ladies and gentlemen. I have no problems with a bad guy killing a child in a movie. Maybe, I'm not saying you got to do it on screen. Maybe you do it off screen, but they're the bad guy and they're supposed to represent evil. So what's, and Christmas is all about kids. So having children threatened and possibly even killed, I'm completely fine with that. I think it makes it scarier personally and more realistic. They'll do it in a foreign film without not in a heartbeat. Balls. They don't give a fucking shit if an horror in a foreign film. America, curse the Puritans. We get a little little queasy about that. They're a little uneasy about it. Unless you're trauma. <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah, yeah they, but they're so over the top. But like I said, if it's before and, and that doesn't make any sense because everything before 84 Jaws, which for cheap plug, not solicited the summer season of, of seeking human victims where you all did all the aquatic beach party horror stuff when y'all your episode on Jaws is incredible, which is oh, one of, of all time. They killed a kid real quick in that one. And oh, yeah, and it was a PG movie and nobody says anything about it. It's Jaws. So why are we getting upset when a movie, you know, like this has an evil Santa pulling kids behind a sleigh? And, and why? You don't say that about Jaws. And Jaws fucking had a shark eat a kid. A fucking shark ate a kid. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> but anyway. Yeah, no, it kind of sets off the, the rest of it. So, like, now we're almost into the modern era. And so, you know, I'll just, like, give you some of my quick favorite. Like, the Silent Night, Deadly Night remake from 2012, Silent Night. Is it's a very loose remake. Like it really doesn't follow the Billy story, but it kind of right. is just it's very loose. But it, it's real mean and nasty and has some really brutal kills. So I think it's worth checking out. You mentioned a Christmas horror story, which is a fun anthology. Well, I think because we are the sister podcast of Geekville Radio, it, it, it merits mentioning the character that ties all the stories together is Captain Kirk himself, William Shatner, playing alcoholic DJ in a small New England town. And yeah, great. And, and, and I think for like a lot of anthologies, it, their quality varies on each story. But that last story about the, the uh, zombie apocalypse outbreak at Santa's workshop and Santa has to turn to a zombie killer is fucking awesome. Yeah, with the fucking Richard Reilly's playing Santa yes. in that, does it? And, and, yeah, and, that's yeah, and, great. And spoiler warning for those that is a five-year-old movie. We come to find out that it's actually – this is just delusions and hallucinations of a PTSD – mall santa and he's actually killing <laughs> the, he's actually killing the people at the mall this isn't really happening which i thought was one of come on one of the reasons we all love horror is the twist endings that was a great yeah, twist ending yeah. it, and, it really was and the opening scene 
where I believe it was, was it For Whom the Bell Tolls? It was a Metallica song. Yes. Plays, and she does this slow motion of, like, the insanity that, that we have made Black Friday. People literally getting in fist fights over. <laughs> I'm going, I'm like, yeah, they're making a little bit of a statement against consumerism and stuff, but it blew me away. And you have to remember, in 2015, Metallica, even to this day, they aren't a band that lets, lets their, their music get used a lot in movies. And they let that song get used in a movie like that. That you know what I'm saying? Yeah, it was, it was pretty cool. I I dug that one, and that of course kind of got overshadowed by what I would consider the last like true Christmas horror and really Christmas classic, and that is 2015's Krampus. Now, like oh, we'll yeah. circle back to that in a minute, but like I do want to mention that there's still some recently pretty great Christmas horror movies that came out just over the last couple of years. I would recommend all these are streaming on Shutter. I would recommend all the creatures are stirring by Rebecca McKendry, who is the director of that. I would mm-hmm. recommend what the fuck is it called? Better watch out, which is kind of like takes some of the home alone premises and turns them on their head and kind of makes them horror. And it's about a really shit ass little kid. So it's, it's worth checking out. There's a, couple of weird old movies from the late 80s that I forgot to mention that I will throw in there as well. One is not streaming anywhere. It's from 1989. It's called Elves, starring Dan Haggerty, grizzly I think I saw that one on, on video on a bender when I was in college. <laughs> I really do, so I don't remember a whole lot of it. But I vaguely remember Grizzly Adams. And, yeah, okay. Like I said, I, it was... I'm sure it was that it was during a, a party at my fraternity house in college, but that don't expect me to remember wild. too much. <laughs> don't it, it's on YouTube for free right now, not oh, legally, okay. but it's the only place you can get it. So, okay. and then there's another French movie from the late '80s that was actually a year before Home Alone that they almost sued over the idea called Deadly Games, aka Dial Code Santa, and that was also shown on Joe Bob's christmas special this year on shutter so that's worth checking out as well so all those are nice recommendations but i will leave you all by talking about how i do think michael doherty's krampus from 2015 is one of the the last like it's the last true christmas horror classic and it really is on its way to becoming a christmas classic in my mind agree 100 percent. agree 100 percent and I have a theory. We did an episode on it, which aired a couple of years ago, but we did re-air it in the build-up to this year's special. So it's out there right now. You can listen to it. I think that it's kind of a parallel. Like, it's almost a modern telling of A Christmas Carol in many, yes. many ways, if you really think about it. Which, we didn't bring this up because it's not a horror holiday movie, but I think there's similarities to Krampus and A Christmas Story to also It's a Wonderful Life. Yep, Absolutely. You know, and it's this whole idea of where would the world be without me? It's just obviously Christmas Carol has a much and Krampus have a much darker and supernatural tinge to them than there's a supernatural tinge, of course, and with the angel and it's a wonderful life. But it's not nearly as dark. And it they, they Krampus, unlike Christmas Carol or it's a wonderful life, does not have the happy ending. I love that ending. Didn't you? For wait, wait for Krampus. Well, it does. Yes, it kind of has yes. the happy ending. I mean, I guess it's oh, how you look at it. Well, no, because once the kid figures out what the fuck's going on, and I'm like, yeah, everybody else is happy, but he ain't, and he's right, your main right. character. 
he finds the so are they imprisoned in a snow globe there's a lot of debate over that ending like or is he just watching over them like can he see them from there right and is he like what what is the meaning of that ending like he's not really explained it and i i love that it's up for some debate and interpretation well, that's that's always to me some of the strongest horror endings that's why the, the ending to the thing is so popular there's the well are they or aren't they that's always going to be a selling point for me personally. But I, 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 as a history guy, like one, one of my degrees was English, one of was in history. I love the fact that Krampus, the movie, has kind of reunited this. We were talking earlier about how it wasn't until recently in the last couple centuries that we got away from the supernatural spooky elements of, of Christmas. It brought back a very spooky folkloric tradition from that part of Europe. And there's now been a lot of people that – I would dare say Krampus is fairly well, – he's right up there like Frosty the Snowman now is a character that the common pop culture people know as a Christmas thing. You know what I'm yeah, saying? Legit, I'm wearing a Krampus shirt right now, oh, <laughs> so that's pretty funny. Uh, but also, like, I think it's just the thing about Michael Doherty's style. He has that imagery that people yes. – really connect to and sometimes it takes a while because the studios don't ever want to get behind him with a full merchandising and marketing push but over time there's this demand for it if you looked at halloween this year trick or treat oh, yes. was everywhere and yes, that was a it was. time you know yeah it was and, and I, krampus the, is starting to do that too it was i noticed that at the spirit halloween there's two stores that i went to in my area and one of them, I didn't even see it until I went – I always go the day after and hit what little they got left when they have it on sale. And I didn't even see it the first two or three times that I was in there. They had this huge seven-foot animatronic Krampus that looked like the Krampus – the depiction of the Krampus in the Michael Doherty movie. Yeah, It was amazing. It was amazing. And I was like – I was sitting there and I was quickly getting out my phone and looking at how much money I had in my account. Cause I was gonna, I was gonna, and 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 sadly, the guy behind the counter said, "Man, we just had a guy come in like twenty minutes ago and buy that. He's coming back with his truck to pick it up." I was like, "Damn it, damn!" And I, I'm wondering for those of us that do the big Halloween decorations outside of our house for Halloween, because of what we're talking about with the merchandising, I fully expect in the next couple of years to see a house decked out and a and a, a Christmas themed Halloween with Krampus and stuff. What what do you think? Yeah, no, I, I hope so. I've tried to do my part. In right. That. I have a gargoyle on my porch that I put a Santa hat on. And, <laughs> there you, you know, go. <laughs> I, I, I do my part, but yeah, I would love to see that. That would be excellent. We didn't mention it, and, and I, I wouldn't call it horror, but it's horror adjacent. I think a lot of that starts with Nightmare Before Christmas. Disney, the Tim Burton produced movie. And that yeah, was what, nine, early it's, 90s? Yeah, I, I think a lot of people, like that's a gateway drug for them yes. for a lot of Spookier things. So for, for my sure. oldest daughter, she's the biggest Jack Skellington mark you'll ever see. And and it's like that was her foray into the horror world. And what I love about that movie is you can literally run it on a constant loop from Halloween to Christmas, and it's always it's never the wrong time of year to watch it. <laughs> so Yeah, no, say absolutely. And, and I think Krampus is uh one of those movies too, because even though it is Christmas centered, it is such a effective horror movie. You can watch it in the middle of the summer and say, oh, We're just gonna watch a horror movie. And that's fine, you know? Yeah, so. it works on a ton of different levels. And I think yeah. why it has that enduring staying power, and that's why well, it's the most recent of true classics that we've gotten. What was the rating on it? I can't remember what the MPA rating it's was. It's PG-13. For those that know how I, I, I'm one of the – I'm in that camp of I hate PG-13 horror movies. This is a PG-13 horror movie I actually like. Yeah, I think there is – 
there is a way. To, I mean, you brought up Gremlins being the first Christmas-themed horror movie you saw. That was the PG. Now, we know it was Gremlins and Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that led to the PG-13 rating. But it still got a PG when it came out. And yep. uh, but anyway, is any other other, other great ho- holiday themed horror movies you can think that you that you would suggest? You've already li- given us a ton to think about, Dan. But any more that yeah, you want to there's, mention? There's, God, there's so many. I will give a shout out because I like some of the writers I, I've gotten to know and are fans of of what I do, and I'm fans of what they do. So I try to give them a shout out as well because they actually they made a kick ass movie as well. But Sleigh Bells from 2018 or 2019. It's another like Santa versus Krampus movie, but it's about these these three hot cosplaying girls who like have to go <laughs> on this adventure, and they team up with Barry Bostwick, who plays Santa, and then the Krampus is Brad done. Majors himself as Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah, and he's awesome. He's like this drunk biker Santa, and he's fucking badass. <laughs> and then the Krampus, like the special effects from the Krampus are just incredible. And he's got this full body suit. They have this true creature. And it's just really fun. Another great horror comedy that I would recommend. Those are always fun for this time of year. Oh, yeah. Well, I'm Seth, this isn't your wheelhouse, but anything that we didn't mention that you would you would think merit mentioning? Well, if you didn't mention Santa Slay, I would have uh, perked up with that one. And and just so people who haven't heard of it, Slay is spelled S-L-A-Y. So Santa yes, Slay. Yes. And, and yes, you heard right. Goldberg kills a bunch of Jewish celebrities in the opening scenes of that movie. The best the best scene is later on when he stabs the deli owner in the Jewish deli with a menorah. Like, that was like a little Easter egg for those of us that knew the religious <laughs> beliefs of Bill Goldberg. But I, like I said, that's politically incorrect, and that's always going to get a rise out of me. But anyway, Dan, well, as always, we thank you for taking the time out of your day to spend a little time with us and talk about something that is, I know, near and dear to your heart. Why don't you get? Why don't you take this time now and, and let everybody know about your awesome podcast and all the other things you got going on? You you got so many things going on horror related. He's an excellent creator of content and resource, and I pick his brain a lot in our in private conversations. So just let other people know where they can reach you and all that kind of stuff, Dan. Thanks, man. Yeah, you can check us out. I host the Seeking Human Victims podcast. We're going into our ninth season in January, and it will be covering the works of Clive Barker. We have three Christmas specials out that we put out three, one each year, and I've I've re-released all of the previous ones. So right now you can go on our podcast feed. And anywhere podcasts are located, you can find Seeking Human Victims. You can find us on social media at OG Scare on Twitter and Facebook. And our YouTube channel is also at OG Scare. We're also on the Slasher app. The website is OGScareProductions.com. And go to our YouTube channel, and we'll be doing a formal re-release of this this week. So by the time this episode airs, you can hit our social media and see the link. But we're actually, we did our own Christmas thing horror film and we will be re-releasing that here this week it's called i got a rock and excellent I- by the way i thumbs up from crazy train for let everyone know oh thank you man thank <laughs> you and so we're going to be re-releasing that as part of our holiday celebration this year as well we've done some coverage of the chattanooga film festival over the last year we did some coverage of their halloween film fest the frightening ass film festival we've, we've got lots of web shows and different things over on our platforms but the podcast of course is the flagship program of one good scare productions and that's seeking human victims once again so yeah we appreciate the opportunity 
opportunity to get on here and talk Christmas horror and plug our stuff. And thanks so much for having me, fellas. Well, brother, it's always, always a pleasure and always a joy. Give your best to your, to your family from me and wish everybody, a, you know, a merry and scary Christmas season. Thank you, brother. And we'll catch you down the road. Thanks, man. Well, my freaky darlings are wrapping up another another Examining Dead and this crazy year that has been 2020. We thank you for listening and for listening to all the episodes we've done this year. We got uh, hopefully 2021 will be a little bit better. It won't be so crazy. I think we've we've given you a lot to think about in this past episode. We've reviewed two what I consider absolute classic movies in the backwoods horror genre. Worth worth checking out. Thanks once again to the Reverend Dan Wilson for coming on. He gave you more than enough to probably keep you busy through Christmas, New Year's, and beyond for Christmas and holiday horror-themed stuff. If you have any questions, anything you want us to cover specifically uh, on Examining the Dead, please let us know. We can You can always follow um, us on Twitter. You can follow me personally at crazytrain underscore JB. I am going to get Seth to link my Christmas playlist as I always do with all our podcasts, there is a little bit of horror themed on there, but mostly, mostly just your typical Christmas stuff. I much like Dan believe that Christmas is a holiday that there's okay. If there's a little scary, spooky element along with the happy, happy and joy Seth, where else can they reach us and, and all that kind of information for our listeners out there? Well, this is all under the Geekville radio umbrella. I like to call it the Geekville radio podcast family, geekvilleradio.com. And then the social media on Twitter is Geekville Radio. You can find us on Facebook, Geekville Radio, but Examining the Dead, you can actually find it, Examining the Dead podcast on Facebook. So if you're talking specifically horror, you can find us at Examining the Dead podcast. And we do, while we do link it, this stuff at Geekville Radio, if you're only, if your main uh, jam is horror, you can just go to Examining the Dead podcast and you can see all the shows and all the stuff that we talk about there as well. That's right. So once again, We wish everybody out there a safe and merry but scary Christmas and safe but scary New Year's. And until then, remember, don't ever go trick-or-treating in Haddonfield. Don't ever go camping at Crystal Lake. And don't ever fall asleep in Springwood. Until then, try to stay out of the dark. Examining the Dead is part of the Geekville Radio Network and part of the Wrestling Brethren podcast family and do not represent the opinions of Geekville Radio or any of their affiliates. Examining the Dead is not sponsored or endorsed by any product or service unless specifically stated. Some media used on Examining the Dead is part of its respective copyright owners, all rights reserved. Theme music by Kevin McLeod can be found at incompetech.com.